For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. All right, here we go. A Wednesday edition of the Sports Bash is live here on 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. What it be, everybody? I'm your host, Mike Gill. Josh Hennings producing today's show and you out there on a Wednesday. Stayed up late last night to watch the Phils. Big offensive explosion. The Phillies, holy moly, are they back? Are they back? Well, we told you they didn't really go anywhere. We told you not to panic. The Phillies break out the bats again in Arizona last night to the tone. It was a lot of those runs at the end of the game were an embarrassment to the game of baseball to have that guy out there pitching. was absolutely... Actually, I take that back. It had my girlfriend laughing. It had her invested in the game for a little bit. She's like, I've never seen someone so bad before. But the Phils win last night. Ranger Suarez pitches today. Gives the Phils a chance to get uh, two in a row. Uh, Schwarber, leadoff homer, 15-3. Phils win in the desert. But they took advantage of that game early. Another Schwarber leadoff home run. Uh, a lot of questions about Schwarber hitting in the leadoff hole. None of which I have a big problem with. Look, I don't have a problem with Schwarber hitting leadoff. I don't love it, but I'm not going to sit here and say, how do you hit the guy leadoff? He has hit well in the leadoff spot. He does a good job of kind of getting the, the table set and getting this team going. He had a leadoff 450-foot bomb last night, and it really just set the tone of the game, just like his leadoff home run did the other night. It was the only run in the game. So Schwarber, a couple hits last night. He's up to 177. It's sad to say he's up to, uh, but he was 160 when he got plugged into the leadoff hole. So he's moved his batting average up, what, 17 points since moving to the leadoff spot. Turner, a couple of hits last night. He was at 230-something or another, and he's up to 249 now. So almost 250 for Turner. He's starting to turn things on. He had two hits last night. He reached base four times with the uh, couple of walks. Castellanos continues to rake. I mean, Castellanos up to 316. His on-base percentage, 361. Three ribbies in the game last night. Harper, couple hits, although he did get a hit late in the game against uh, uh, Rojas, who came in, and he was just embarrassing. Uh, Real Muto, though. I think Real Muto has really changed the dynamics of this offense over the last couple of days. Had the uh, cycle. Then yesterday had a double and a triple. When you get Real Muto going like this, this really lengthens the lineup. And Real Muto in the month of April and May, had really, really struggled. And JT is really starting to come around. He's up to 260 now. Stott, over 300. Three hits last night. 
Uh, Bohm had a couple of hits last night, although I think one of his hits also came against uh, Rojas. So everybody padding their stats against Rojas late last night. For those of you who weren't awake for the, uh, the end of the game, Arizona threw a position player in the ninth, and he was horrible. I mean, I'm talking 44 miles an hour, 37 miles an hour. He was looping pitches in, just EFIS pitches. He was pitching out of the windup with runners on base. He had his leg up in the air, and then he was pausing, and he was hitching, and he was turning. I mean, it was a joke uh, that Rojas was on the mound last night. Um, Cody Clements had a hit. The entire lineup had a hit last night. Every guy who batted, and this is including the reserves, like Dalton Guthrie got an at-bat in the ninth. He got a hit. Sosa came up in the ninth. He got a hit. The only guy who didn't get a hit last night was Stubbs. He was the only guy on the entire team that did not get one of their 20 hits last night. And the offense is really starting to find itself, and it kind of coincides with the month of June. Take that as it may. It also coincides. It was a Friday edition of the Sports Bash. It was a happy hour Friday, June the 2nd, when the Phillies moved Schwarber back to the leadoff spot, much to the chagrin of many of our listeners who don't like Schwarber in the leadoff spot. But the move has kick-started his season. It has also kick-started this team. Phil's now one game under five hundred. A couple things that stand out in the game last night, on top of Schwarber hitting the leadoff bomb last night, Castellanos, two doubles. Yo, Castellanos is another guy. Last year, there were people who, you know, he's the worst, he sucks, he's terrible, he'll never be. This guy, and he's not the same guy he was in Cincinnati that year. The guy in Cincinnati, I don't know where, he had an outer body experience for a year. You're not getting that guy again. But you're getting a completely different Castellanos. This guy's hitting for average. He's doubling, coming up big. Last year, you never thought he was going to come up big, man. Never. Castellanos, two doubles last night. But JT Realmuto, what he's doing right now is really... So my observations from the game are this. Realmuto... If they can get the JT Real Muto they had at the back end of last year, when Harper went out, Real Muto picked it up. They're starting to get that guy right now. Schwarber with the leadoff homer, kind of kick-started him. Stott over 300. It's given length to this lineup with Real Muto hitting five, Stott hitting six. Now your 7-8-9 has a couple guys in it. Look, 7-8 line last night, they're all hitting over 260 in the back end of the lineup. So the observations from the lineup is a lot deeper all of a sudden. A lot deeper all of a sudden with Real Muto and Stott not at the top of the lineup, but more in the middle of the lineup. It's given the Phillies a little bit more um, speed in the middle of the lineup. It's given the Phillies a little bit more production at the top of the lineup because of the way, look, Turner got off to an awful start. So you had him at the top of the lineup, so you really had nobody on base a lot. Well, now Turner's getting on, Castellanos is getting on, and because Castellanos can be trusted, do we trust Castellanos? I guess so, but because he can be trusted, the Phillies can hit him in the three-hole. I mean, normally you think of your best guy hitting in the three-hole. There's Harper. You're going to win in the number three-hole. 
Well, because Castellanos is saying, look, I can handle this right now, you could put him in the three-hole, and now it really gives the, the lineup a lot more uh, length and a lot more depth. So last night they pound out 20 hits. The night before, double-digit hits, they had 13 hits. So they have 33 hits in the last two nights. They scored eight runs on Monday, 15 runs on Tuesday. I mean, the offense is starting to hit its stride, no question. Now, the four runs they got in the ninth I think can be questioned. There's no question about that. Uh, those four runs were a joke. But still, you take those four runs away, they still scored 11 runs last night against Arizona pitching and four runs against an Arizona second baseman. Who, by the way, in the history of position players, he ranks last. He's the worst position player pitcher I've ever seen in my life. You know, most of these guys, you're a position player, you've pitched in high school, you've pitched at some level. That guy was absolutely the worst. Like, if you didn't stay up late to watch, it was after midnight when that happened last night. So if you weren't up to see, um, who the heck was the pitcher last night? Uh, Rojas, uh, Josh Rojas. If you did not stay up to watch Josh Rojas pitch, you missed the scene, man. I mean, he was a mix of, uh, I just brought the guy up yesterday. Who's the guy that I brought up yesterday? Who's going to be a free agent next year? And you said he's still a uh, Johnny Cueto. Yeah, Johnny Cueto. He was a mix of Johnny Cueto meets uh, meets I, me. I, I, I don't. I, I never saw you pitch, so I can't add you to the mix there. I'm sorry, but Josh Rojas was a mix of Johnny oh, Cueto. Assuming, you know, he's got Josh in his name, so and must be bad. Like Hideo Nomo. I mean, he was turning his back. And he had, like, the Ephus pitch. He threw strikes. I'll give him that. He was around the plate. I was trying to figure out. Did you watch it live? Yeah, I was trying. I was waiting for him to fall. Uh, Me too. Like, he was balancing himself, and then he was, like, jerking around. And his, why his leg was, like. Halfway around. He had his leg, like, he was. (laughs) He was trying to corkscrew, I think. But, like, it was not going very well. It was. I, I tell you, my girlfriend liked it. She was laughing. She was, like. I feel bad for the poor guy who gets out against this guy. That's how bad he was. She's like, (laughs) did that say 44 miles an hour? And I'm like, yeah, this guy's not a pitcher. He followed that up with a 37-mile-per-hour, I don't want to say fastball, because it certainly wasn't a fastball. It wasn't fast. No, 37 is not. I mean, he just was literally. He was throwing junk. It wasn't throwing junk. He was throwing lob balls. He was just lobbing it. He was like, what are you, throwing junk? Are you kidding me? That guy didn't have a curveball. No, I said junk as like trash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was just throwing lob pitches. It was terrible. And I felt bit like, at one point, the Phillies hitters are first pitch swinging, and they're just teeing off on this guy. And he got Castellanos out, actually, because he threw one in on his hands. He got it up and in on Castellanos. And these guys were just swinging first pitch. It's almost like at that point in the game, you're trying to get yourself out so you can end the damn thing. But some of these guys, Dalton Guthrie, uh, Sosa, those weren't guys who get a lot of playing time. So they went up there with some intent. They wanted to, to get the average up there. And yeah, why it not? was just terrible to see. Yeah, raise that batting average, the on-base percentage, the slug, raise it all. Get it going. Right. That was the message from who was the uh, – Analyst, was it Ruben Amaro? Ruben Amaro. 
Uh, so that yeah, was Ruben one. Was like, this is a great. Remember, he said this is a great opportunity for these guys. Yeah, so saying Ruben Amaro <laughs> last night. Do you not listen to what I just said here? Well, you were asking who the announcer. <laughs> oh, no, I said whoever it was was talking about getting your batting average going and and padding your stats against the position players. The 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 the, the players love when the position players come in because he said they can pad their their uh, their numbers. But the Phillies offense, twenty hits last night, great up and down. Every guy in the starting lineup and the reserves. The only guy who didn't have the hit last night, as we mentioned, was Stubbs. But the most revealing thing of the night goes back to the mound. Wheeler, six innings, seven strikeouts, just one walk. He gave up the home run um, in the sixth. And I thought that was one of the best nights Wheeler's had all season long. Only four hits. And that's a pretty good Arizona team. You know, the Phillies have had their struggles in Arizona, including the night before, where they had a five-run lead and blew that. So to see Wheeler, and we've talked about this the last couple shows, and it's frustrating to see Wheeler, you know, two starts ago for Wheeler, I think it was. It was a Friday night. Uh, He faced Washington, right? And he was terrible in that game. It was unacceptably terrible he was in that game. And the poor defense didn't help either. But he gave up seven runs in three innings in that game. Yeah. Unacceptable against that team. It was almost like a dot. Like It's like if once one thing went wrong, everything went wrong. Eight hits, seven runs in that game. And they were all earned runs. He follows that up with maybe his best. He had the no-hitter going against Detroit. And he almost lost that game, but maybe his best pitching performance of the season. Got into the eighth. Well, people forget, actually, the pitching performance he had before the Washington game. He had that game against the Braves. When he beat them, he went eight innings and had 12 strikeouts. So you look at four of the last five Wheeler starts have been really good starts. Wheeler seems like he is starting to turn the corner and become that top-of-the-rotation guy again. He'll never be, right, he'll never be the number 1A guy, but he's certainly, you know, a low-end number one. And you're starting to see him kind of recarve that out now. That, coupled with the guy who's going to pitch today, tonight I should say, Ranger Suarez, I think Suarez... I think we talked about him the other day. What? He has now compiled three straight back-to-back-to-back solid starts. So now you got Wheeler, Suarez, Taiwan Walker, who gave you a solid couple of starts here, including his last start. If you can get some more consistency, and I know that's been the big problem for Aaron Nola, but come on, everybody. We know Nola was a big part of them getting to the playoffs and making a run in the playoffs last year. There, are, Look, there's reasons why the Phillies were an 87-win team last year because Nola's so inconsistent. If you had a ace Nola, you're probably not at 87 wins. You're probably at like 90 wins, 91 wins possibly. But that's just not who he is. Right. But as long as you get a, a Aaron Nola, <laughs> the Aaron Nola that we know, as inconsistent as he can be, if you get that guy with this Wheeler and this Suarez and the Walker we're starting to see, now you got the makings of something. This offense is starting to heat up. And if you can keep this offense, you're not going to score 15 runs. I get it. But you might get eight. You could get five. And if you give me five, if you give me six, if you give me eight, 
Every now and then you pop me an 11 or a 15. I can work with that with these four guys pitching. Now, you got to figure out the fifth spot in the rotation. You can't go. And it's not even about the fifth guy in the rotation winning the game. I'm not asking the guy to win. I'm just asking him not to tax my bullpen so I don't lose on the other days. Right? The thing they were talking about last night, I was listening to, I guess, Kevin Stocker. Does he do the radio stuff? They, they change guys on the radio so often. I don't even know who it is half the time. I actually don't remember who's on the radio anymore. I think it was Stocker. And what he was talking about, I think JT Realmuto talked about this after the game on Monday night. When you go with a bullpen game, all right, the reason why it's tough to win on that day is because you're essentially asking five, six, maybe seven different pitchers to pitch. And normally those guys aren't your top-of-the-line uh, bullpen guys because you're not putting in your your setup man in the second inning. You're not putting your seventh-inning guy in the third inning. You're not putting your closer in in the fourth inning. What you're doing is you're taking the long men – the bottom of the barrel guys, so you're starting a guy and he's maybe going three if he's lucky. Well, then you take the worst guy you have and follow him up, and then you take your next worst guy and then you follow him up, and then you take your next worst guy and you're hoping that your three or four worst available arms get you through a game. And if only one of them has a bad day, like that Kovey clown, well, guess what? You lose. So to try to ask them to do that every fifth day is tough. And I said before, I didn't say, I, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to act like Bailey Falters, a Cy Young Award winner, or Bailey Falters, my guy. Bailey Falters stinks. But what Bailey Falter did at least was pitch five innings. They might not have been good innings, but he pitched five innings. And that's basically, at this point right now, with those four starting pitchers pitching the way they are, the guy that pitches on the fifth day, he has to be able to pitch five innings. You can't have two-inning guy backed up by Covey, backed up by, I can't even name some of these guys that they're bringing in. you got to have Marte. someone that can give you a shot, Marte, Vasquez. to get you through five. And the problem with Falter was that he's not good. But the other problem was the Phillies were scoring two runs a game for Falter. So right. every fifth day, if every twice time, two times, he actually holds the lineup to three runs and you score five, you might win a game when he pitches and he might save the bullpen. So just by somebody, it doesn't have to be Falter. I don't need to see Falter ever pitch again in my life. But someone has to be able to do Gives you five innings. And that's why, you know, I talked about yesterday, I wrote at 973ESPN.com, you know, a guy like Zach Greinke, who's a veteran, he's old, but he could, he's pitched in five innings in 12 of his 14 starts this year. Can I get him for a low level prospect and just take a, sh like, he would be a probably more advanced version of what you got from Syndergaard last year. Just a guy that you could throw every fifth day and say, hey, go pitch five innings. Go pitch five innings, and this way, in the sixth, I can use Soto. In the seventh, I can use Dominguez. In the eighth, I can use Alvarado. And in the ninth, I can use Kimbrel. That eliminates having to use 
the guys you're talking about, Covey and Marte, Marte, Vasquez, Tippy Tippy Day Day, all these clowns. I don't need any of them. I don't want to see them again, especially Covey. God, he stinks. And didn't you mention yesterday they signed uh, uh, Thompson? Yeah, Jake Thompson they signed. I don't know. I think they sent him to Double A. See if they can. Um, I can't believe they brought that guy back. Well, they're just looking for anybody at this point that um, you know. I'm surprised they didn't call you. I'm not available. Not available. Arm dead. 609-403-0973. 609-403-0973. So that's the look back at last night's fills. And what it does for them, for those of you wondering, uh, in the division, they gained a half a game on idle, uh, not idle Atlanta, but uh, Atlanta seven and a half back. And they are two back in the wild card. Interesting because uh, the Dodgers, <laughs> the Dodgers, who they took two out of three from, and now they're playing Arizona. Arizona has gone three games up on the Dodgers in the West. How about that? So that's an interesting storyline that I think is actually something we need to keep an eye on because I don't think anybody thought Arizona was going to be in this thing. So does Arizona, you've watched them now twice. They got two more games with the with the Phillies this week. Has Arizona shown you that they have staying power in this race? Are they going to be around all season long? Their pitching this series has been dreadful, and that's been their calling card this year. Their pitching's been pretty good. Yeah, you're not facing their best pitcher, though, Pat Gallon, So No, you're not facing their best, but he only throws once. The rest of the guys, if you have one guy and four lousy ones, the Phillies have one lousy one and four pretty good ones right now. They're, but their pitching has got them to this point where Correct. they're in first place, three games up on the Dodgers. So you're watching Arizona. Do you think Arizona's in this for the long haul, or are they just a little summer fling? I think they're more in the long haul than the Marlins are. Yeah, the Marlins right now are the number two wild card. They've lost two straight. The Giants are the number three wild card. They've won three in a row. The Brewers are just leaking oil. They've lost five in a row. They got some injury issues, that team. And then Philadelphia is two back. So Philly is two back of the Giants. The Reds are kind of, they've won four in a row. They've been a great story. The Padres are starting to play a little bit better. The Mets are leaking oil. We'll talk more about the race in the National League. Who do we believe in? Coming up in just a little bit here on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. You can download the app in the Apple Store or Google Play. Get it on your phone. Get it on your laptop. Get it on your tablet. And bring the Sports Bash with you wherever you may roam. Now, that's a look at the wild card. That's a look at the National League. That's a look at all that. Coming up, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Cam Rogers, the U.S. Open, is in L.A. for the first time at the L.A. Country Club. My buddy's there today. He's uh, walking around the group with uh, Rom and Mickelson. Belly, did you hear the the Cam's got to talk to you about the rules for this country club? I'll have to ask about it. I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about how, like, apparently for the rules for this country club are, like, really, like, snobby stuff. Sounds about right. Uh, what a Bradley Beal deal might look like. That's all coming up today. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN and the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Come now. Back. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts. 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 228 is the time. Sports Bash is the place, you know... You look at this Phillies team and start to wonder how frustrating it is that they got off to such a slow start. And here they are at 500. What are they missing? What can they do? Well, I'll tell you what. We talked about the Denver Nuggets being patient. That's essentially what the Phillies just need to do. They got to be patient and just kind of let their guys iron themselves back out. You got a guy like Trey Turner. Turn the bubble call, uh, the baseball card over, chew the bubble gum, and look at his stats and say, the guy I got for two months isn't what I paid for. Right? You gotta be patient with the Trey Turner. You can't think he's gonna hit 232 all season long. And they had a lot of guys like that. Look, Nick Castellanos, we waited all year for last year. It never happened. Now you're getting the return on investment from Nick Castellanos. You're getting that from Turner. All of a sudden, he's turned the corner. You're getting it from Wheeler, who did not pitch well to start the season. You're getting it from Walker, who you paid a lot of money to this offseason to kind of add some depth to the uh, starting rotation. And you waited for Suarez. Remember, they didn't have Suarez all season long. He just got back. What's this, his fifth start or sixth start now? It's You're seeing the difference of what the Phillies team, and quite frankly, the Phillies should be somewhat applauded for the fact that they were kind of 500-ish in the month of April. They kind of keep them involved in the race until they got Harper back, until they got Suarez back. These are things that you say, hey, all right, now I'm on board. I, I see what happened here. They got off to a bad start. They had a lot of injury issues. A lot of teams do, by the way. Factor in that the National League is very mediocre. So we looked at the teams in the wild card. Dodgers, I think we all believe in. Although, Josh, you can vouch for this. My preseason predictions were Baltimore would be a playoff team and the Dodgers would not. Yeah, you uh, you were you said you had, you have yet. I believe the way you phrased it was is you said if I had to pick one team that made the postseason last year. That won't this year. Well, I like Baltimore in the American League to be the team that didn't get in last year that would get in this year. And in the National League, you know, we talked about, I said, I think all six teams will get back in the same exact six. I don't think that's going to happen now because I don't think St. Louis is going to turn their season around. They've now lost four in a row, eight out of ten. They're the worst team in the National League right now, St. Louis. But the other team, I said, don't be surprised if the Dodgers don't make the playoffs. And that was for two reasons. One, Thought San Diego could beat them in the West, and that's possible still. And that Arizona was starting to come a little bit. You knew, or you thought anyway, that three teams in the National League East would get in. You thought there's no way the Braves aren't getting in. Saw what the Phillies did this offseason, went to the World Series, got Trey Turner, added Walker, built the bullpen. Figure there's no way the Phillies aren't making the playoffs. And then, of course, the Mets had to make the playoffs, right? Well, we were wrong about the Mets now, looks like two. There's a possibility that three teams that made the playoffs last year won't get in after we said we thought all six teams that made it last year would get back. So, right now, six teams made the playoffs last year, four of them are out. 
playoffs started today. No Phillies, no Padres, no Mets, no cards. Think about that. Go back to April and put that on your bingo card. (laughs) So right now, Arizona, you got the division leaders. Atlanta's four games up on Miami, seven and a half up on Philly. This one is hard, but Pittsburgh leads the Central. The two Central divisions are an embarrassment to the baseball. Minnesota is one game over five hundred in the American League and in first place. And Pittsburgh is three games over five hundred in the Central in the National League, and they're in first place. You know, Pittsburgh's run differential is minus six. The entire National League Central run differential is a minus. Now, that being said, the Braves are the only team in the National League East that have a plus run differential. They're a plus 68. The next best team is Philadelphia at minus 22. But Pittsburgh is in first place. Do they have staying power? Here's the problem. Nobody else in that division is any good. Milwaukee's in in shambles right now. Cincinnati's starting to play well, and everybody's excited about their young talent that they've got out there. I just don't know that they have the pitching to kind of keep them in the race all summer long. Not that Pittsburgh does. I don't know. The Central is is like the uh, NFC uh, South this year. Who's Tampa Bay, really? Who's the team that's just going to backwards themselves in? And then you have Arizona. So the Central, whoever wins that Central, you're only getting one team there, I would imagine. So now that means you're really fighting for wild card spots between the East and the West. Does Arizona have the staying power? I'm wishy-washy on them. Watching them, you know, they're a team that has good pitching. Um, Their offense is okay. I don't know. I, I don't know what to think. If you ask me right now, is Arizona going to be in the race in September? I would say they will not be in first place. They may not be in first place. They could definitely make the wild card because of how the National League is just not a deep league. No, there's just you're there's not a lot of depth. Right? It's the Braves. It's right right now. The Braves and the Diamondbacks are the only two teams that have forty wins. Nobody else. Uh, after that, you got a bunch of teams hovering around 500. Miami, six Correct. games over. I don't know that I believe in them. In fact, no, I know I don't believe in Miami. Just too young. Don't have the depth. Those teams, listen, what people need to understand, when it starts to get hot and these seasons start to feel long, some of these guys get out of the gates and they're like having a good old time. And they look at the calendar and they say, oh, my God, I got three more months of this. Right. I mean, you realize you're three games back or four and a half games back, Miami, and you're playing the best baseball you've ever played. You're thinking, I'm in this thing. And then three months later, you look at the calendar and say, oh, my gosh, I still have another month to go. It's the most important month, September. And I don't think Miami has the legs to get that deep where they are. So I think they'll start to fade as we hit that July 4th. That back end of July, we head into the really hot months of August. I think Miami starts to fade a little bit there. Although the, um, they've got the, the, um, uh, the, they're, they're, they are where they are. And, you know, Alcantara has not pitched, uh, nearly as well. He has, uh, struggled this year. Uh, so if they can get him, like, same thing we're talking about with Philly. Hey, can I get my guys to turn around a little bit? 
Um, so Miami, interesting, but I think they'll start to fade. Arizona, if, if you ask me, I would say they're more inclined to fade than hang. Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Chicago, St. Louis, doesn't matter. Whoever wins that division is the only team getting in. I don't think they have a wild card entry there. So then it becomes, do you think the Marlins can hang? I don't. Do you think the Mets can rebound? Hmm lukewarm on that i'd be more inclined to say no i think the mets are done so then it becomes all right can the dodgers hang yeah i think the dodgers can hang they're not where they were can the diamondbacks hang Mm, i'm lukewarm on that are the giants going to be in play i don't think so san diego can san diego turn it around there's your there's your team so philadelphia and san diego i think where they are right now they have hovered they have hung and they have legs. That's the difference for me. They have not played their best ball, and they're still in it. The other teams have played their best ball and didn't get enough separation. To me, the real key for the Giants, the Diamondbacks, and the Pirates is one thing. Are those three teams willing to give up a prospect and make a big deal? Because a guy like Marcus Stroman is going to be out there available for trade. And I think whatever team he goes to, he's going to make a difference for. If one of those three teams is willing to make a big trade and give up a serious prospect, they could elevate their case. Mike, not to put down what the Phils did last night, but instead of worrying about their play this year, did they maybe catch magic in a bottle at the right time last year? Sure, yeah. They got hot at the right time last year. That's generally what happens when you're an 87-win team. You sneak into the wild card. You start to play your best baseball. That's called sports. That's what we just saw in the NBA. That's what we just saw in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Two teams that were not good regular season teams. They were average. And they got hot at the right time. I'm okay getting that ticket yet again. And I predicted that at the beginning of the year. I said the Phillies season would not be fun. This is not going to be an entertaining season. It's just not. Every team needs luck to have some success. Sports Bash, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Uh, the Phil's starting to... Here down, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City will take a look at the National League race. Which teams is he buying? Which teams is he selling? Plus, we know the two the NBA is done, the NHL is done, and the NFL, 88 days away. 88 days away from the kickoff of the NFL season. We told you when Eagles training camp begins. We got football at four. Jeff Mosher's in the house today, coming up in about an hour and 20 minutes. Stick. Now, back Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. 245 Sports Bash. Phils tonight in Arizona. Ranger Suarez looking to make it too straight for the Phils. All of a sudden, Phils offense waking up. Any surprise to Mike McGarry from the press of Atlantic City? We talk a lot about the Phils. You start to hit the dog days of summer, and you wonder, which of these teams we talked on Friday, Mike, who has legs to kind of hang around in this? This is an Arizona team that's in first place in the West. Phils have scored, what, 25 runs, it feels like. Uh, Ten of them came against the kid who pitched in the ninth inning. Pretty embarrassing last night. But uh, all of a sudden, uh, Phils, uh, for the people who just said, hey, wait till June gets here, they're being rewarded, man. Yeah, the warm weather uh, seems to wake up the Phils, right? And they are hitting the, hitting the baseball 
And, you know, it was inevitable that they would hit at some point. All nine guys weren't going to have uh, bad games. And, and who should we talk about today? Because I remember on Monday we talked about how JT Riomuto needs to get going. And all of a sudden he hits for the cycle and uh, has another great game last night and raises his OPS about 200 points in two days. So who should we uh, put our <laughs> right. uh, our good luck graces <laughs> on today, basically? Can we, can we get another level from Trey Turner? Or is he also, because we talked about him Friday and whether or not the Phillies wanted him to kind of hang in the four hot until he got hot or did they want to get him matriculate him back to the top well he's back in that two spot and he seems to still be hitting yeah i mean he uh he he is gonna hit right i think he's he at the end of the year his numbers are not probably not going to add up to what he's done in his career but he is going to have a stretch this season at some point where he is going to get really, really hot. And uh, we just kind of have to accept that, you know, it's it's hard now to overcome, you know, two months of bad performances. Uh, so is, the back of his baseball card might not look as good as it has in past years at the end of the season, but he is still going to hit and be a key part of this lineup. And I guess, you know, we, we you know, kind of hit at it uh, last week too. They moved Schwarber June 2nd to the leadoff spot. And just having him up there, that, that leadoff home run that's now the second time he's done it, it really set, uh, seems to set the tone. Yeah, he's just comfortable there, right? I mean, he has a lot of success. It worked last year. Uh, and again, he's another guy. You know, I remember looking at the stats in May, and he was something like eight for his last 100, like eight hits in his last 100 at-bats or something like that. He was not going to continue to be that epically bad, and he's managed to turn it around. I think though we talk about the offense turning around, Let's keep in mind, they only split the two games so far in, in Arizona and, and that series in Oakland. I, I hate to come in here on Monday <laughs> if they lose two out of three to all of a sudden the hottest team in baseball, the Oakland A's. Seven in a row for the A's. Sell the team. Sell the team. <laughs> Mike McGarry from the Friends of Atlantic City is with us. Yeah, you know, we talk about, you know, we name a guy that get hot. Well, everybody in the lineup had a hit last night. Every single guy except for uh, Stubbs who uh, ended the game with a flyout to right field. They pounded out 20 hits. They had 13 hits the night before. So, yes, it seems like the offense is going. Starting to get good starting pitching now, too. Walker had a good start. Suarez tonight, he's building on three straight, but two straight good ones now from Wheeler. It feels like Wheeler is starting to kind of resettle himself in. Yeah, if you look at it, it's really kind of three of his last four have been good because the start – you know, he was Washington. bad in Washington on that Friday night, but he was really good against the Braves a couple days before that, or four days, four or five days before that. So three of the four are really good. His ERA, I think, is down to like three seven now. So he's really uh, coming on. Suarez has pitched well. Walker seems to have straightened himself out. Aaron Nola, you see people either love him or hate him. I, you know, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's a valuable part. It's that number five spot is is a little troublesome for them right now. But, you know, they are getting some good, solid starting pitching. And, again, a big game tonight, I think, for Ranger Suarez and the Phillies because if they can win this one, they guarantee at least a split in the series. And if they, they win this one – you figure they can at least get one in Oakland. So that means worst-case scenario, the trip is a three-and-four trip. If not, get two in Oakland, and you're four-and-three on the trip. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's and another reason, you know, you're starting to get Wheeler – 
If Suarez, you know, now you've stabilized that. Walker seems like, okay, you're not going to get Cy Young, Walker, but he looks like he's... The big thing is, is getting these guys to pitch five and six innings, which they were not getting before, and then it turns back to that fifth spot, and they got to figure out what to do there. And again, I'm not sitting here advocating for Bailey Falter or anybody quite... I don't know that I have an answer, but you can't keep going with the bullpen game and having Covey and, and these other clowns getting out there pitching two innings and one inning and one inning because it just decimates the team's bullpen. Yeah, I would agree with that. A couple things about that, right? Dylan Kobe has not – they pictured a guy, uh, the, the quote-unquote bulk guy, and Dylan Kobe being that bulk guy. So the opener comes in, throws an inning, two innings, and then Kobe takes down three or four innings. Well, so far he hasn't been able to do that. And the bloom is off the mat Strom Rose a little bit. He has struggled his last couple of times out, right? So all of a sudden – that doesn't seem to be as great an option. I agree with you. I think they have to move back to a regular starting pitcher who can go out there and kind of, you know, hook up by crook, piece together five innings, maybe six innings if everything goes right. I think they were moving in the direction of maybe trying Bailey Falter again. And then in his last start in the minors, he just got absolutely shelled. So maybe he's not an option again. But I agree with you. This bullpen game, trying to piece together four or five guys, all of a sudden it's Jeff Hoffman in the eighth inning and you're losing eight three. Uh, is not a tenable position going forward. Yeah, you're right about that because, you know, even Falter for his faults, no pun intended, he was getting you five innings for the most part. He just was able to get you through five, whether they were good five or not. They were only scoring two runs a game for Falter. His ERA was in the mid-five. And I looked at his numbers when he got, you know, sent down, Mike. They were basically identical to what Kyle Gibson gave you. He had almost the same whip and the same ERA and the same innings uh, per game as Kyle Gibson gave you last year. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Falter uh, is that he he was having trouble even getting through two and, and three innings. And if you look at Kyle Gibson's stats from last year, because I kind of looked at that uh, around that time, and I said, you know, is, did Kyle Gibson give him the same thing? Gibson's numbers were a little bit deceiving. He Gibson went through a stretch last year in June and July and in the, in the beginning of August where he was actually pretty good. He kind of got them through the dog days. And then if you remember, he faded. He fell off a cliff in September. He was absolutely horrible in September. His last four or five starts were awful. And he pitched, what, I think once in the postseason in basically a mop-up role. So, uh, yeah, he got them through the dog days, and that's kind of what they need now. And I think, you know, Fulter wasn't doing that. Maybe they thought they had better options at the time. Strom was pitching better. Maybe they thought they could navigate it with the off days. I agree. I, I would give Bailey Fulter another chance, but it seemed like when they were headed in that direction, you know, he, like I said, he got absolutely shelled a couple nights ago in AAA. So I don't know if he's going to be an option going forward. But I agree with you. This Dylan Covey, Matt Strom. Jeff Hoffman sort of uh, three-headed <laughs> monster that's going out there every fifth day is not, you know, is not tenable going forward. Uh, Mike, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. So we see the fills. We just talked about the lineup, turn the corner, pitching, starting pitching for the five guys, seemingly giving you five, six innings, starting to find their way. Uh, we like the back end of the bullpen, I think. Alvarado and Dominguez and Soto and even Kimbrell. So... Here we are, uh, 67 games in. We just turned the counter to June. Uh, what are we starting to feel about this team as constructed today? 
You, you know, I, I think you got a team that's going to be in it till the till the last day of the season. I think you got a team that's going to make the playoffs. I think you got a team right now that's probably a wild card team. And, and you know, on the best case scenario is that you get to that fourth spot, right, and that you host the uh, the, the, the uh, two game series. I think that's probably right now the best case scenario. I just see, you know, the Braves are out there, and I think the Braves are vulnerable a little bit. But again, I don't know if the Phillies have enough, especially with that fifth starter kind of missing to catch the Braves, basically. So I think you're looking at a playoff team, and I think right now you're shooting for the number four wild card seat because, you know, everybody's going to refer back to last year. And I think what made last year special is it doesn't happen that often. I mean, people, I'm sure people remember, but they might forget, you know, the ninth inning of game one, they, they were down two runs going into that ninth inning. If they don't turn that game around right there, you know, Bedlam at the bank and all that good stuff never happens last October. So to kind of depend on that to happen again, you know, I, I don't think that's that's the way to go. So I, I see a wild card team and I think a team that should shoot for the number four seed to get those you know, the the first two games at home uh, in, in the playoff series. All right. Uh, Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City. Phil's tonight, Ranger Suarez trying to get game uh, two of this three, uh, four-game set. They're trying to get their second win and take this third game uh, with a chance to split out in Arizona, who, by the way, leads the NL West by three games over the Dodgers. So the Dodgers right now lead the wild card, uh, followed by Miami, and uh, the Giants. So you are currently, if you're a Phillies fan, fourth, uh, fifth in the wild card. Milwaukee's in there as well. Pittsburgh leads the Central. Mike, we'll talk to you Friday, man. All right, I'll be here. Thanks a lot. Mike. Yeah, Mike McGarry back on Friday. We'll do the weekend preview with Mike McGarry from the Press of Atlantic City, PressofAC.com. He joins us, of course, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at this time on the Sports Bash U.S. Open this week. Storylines for a first-timer. That's coming up in about a half hour. Cam Rogers, my golf guy, joins us here on the Sports Bash live from Believe. And, of course... Got football at four. Jeff Mosher's in the house. We'll take a look at some of the key Eagles news between now and the start. We had a good conversation this morning. I was on Birds 365. Uh, the Eagles uh, will be back in play July 25th when training camp begins. How many people missed the old Lehigh days? How many people in the listening audience took a ride to Lehigh and went to watch the Eagles at training camp? More sports fast coming up on 97.3 ESPN. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. Many people out there intrigued by the thought of adding a player like Bradley Beal. But are the Sixers as intrigued as you are? I'm Mike Gill. This is the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Uh, I don't think the Sixers, as Woj reports, that the Wizards are going to work with Bradley Beal on trade scenarios. I don't think the Sixers are making that call. And I'll tell you why. I talked about it yesterday, and I looked at it further today. It might be the worst contract in the NBA. Horrendous. And I think the Sixers are over 
paying, <laughs> well, they are done paying or overpaying people. I think that they are at the point where they have to realistically ask the question, why is Bradley Beal unable to get his team into the playoffs, let alone out of the playoff round? He can't get them to the playoffs. Well, a couple reasons. He hasn't been healthy. What's the problem with the Sixers' current cast of characters? Well, their main guy's always hurt. You heard Doc Rivers say it yesterday. What does Joel Embiid need to do? Well, number one, he has to stay healthy. Hasn't been healthy. Well, guess what? Bradley Beal, his contract, if we're just sitting here having a conversation, right? I'm talking, you guys are listening. If we take a look at the contract, it looks like somebody's listening to my show. Uh, If you're looking at the contract, you're paying Bradley Beal $46 million next year, $50 million the year after, $53 million the year after that, and $57 million the following season. I don't know that I could swallow that if I'm Josh Harris. How could any owner in this league say, yeah, I'm going to pay you $57 million to play on a team that hasn't been past the first round of the playoffs in about 40 years? Seriously, how do you rubber stamp that thing? Hey, bang, $57 million for you, and you can't get us to the playoffs, let alone out of a playoff round. Look, I like Bradley Beal. He's a nice player, but that's what he is. Is Bradley Beal the proverbial good player on the bad team? Do we look at Bradley Beal and get excited because he just seems to be better than what we have, but not any different than what you already have if you have him? You know, when the Sixers made trades in the past, they got guys like Chris Webber. He was really good for them, and then I got him, and he wasn't so good. They got Glenn Big Dog Robinson, and he was really good for them, and then I got him, and he wasn't so good. And I got Keith Van Horn. He was really good for them, and then I got him, and he wasn't so good. I don't know that Bradley Beal is at the end of the road, but, man, the injuries are starting to pile up for that guy, and the price tag, it's like going to the grocery store without a bag now. You see those people trying to walk out of the store with a bunch of cans underneath their armpits? Message to the businesses out there, just have a bag. It's not all that hard. So the people don't have to go juggling cans. That's Bradley Beal right now. It's the guy who goes through the ShopRite line or the Acme line or the Lidl line or whatever shopping uh, grocery store you shop at. And you fill up your cart to the top and the guy left the bags in your car. You want a bag for that? And the guy says, no, I'm not paying 35 cents to put all this stuff in a bag. I'll carry it out myself. Well, that would be the uh, the Sixers carrying out Bradley Beal's contract to the end. You fill up the damn thing, the grocery cart with all this stuff, and then you get to the checkout line, and it's like, oh, I forgot my bags. I don't know that Bradley Beal's getting you to the end of the grocery line healthy, man. That's my biggest major concern. But there's a couple things to point out here. One, Bradley Beal, who I just mentioned, I don't know that it's one of the worst contracts in the league. I think it is the worst. $57 million for a guy who hasn't made, uh, he didn't make the playoffs last year. And part of that's because he's hurt. 
That's bad. 50. I did not realize he got, who paid him that money? Oh my gosh. To have that kind of money to just wildly spend like that is incomprehensible to me. Like if I was the owner of the Washington Wizards and somebody came to me and said, Hey, we want to pay someone on our team $57 million. I'd be like, get out of my office with that request. <laughs> come on, man. Don't ever come back and ask me that. You get me to the second, at least the second round of the playoffs and I'll think about it. This team, I'm being honest when I say this. I don't remember the Washington Wizards ever being in the second round. Now, I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I just don't remember. Did they get to a second round with Wall ever? I'm double checking right now. I don't think so. My, 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 Intuition is to say they did not. But I would say the last time the Wizards have been to at least the second round of the playoffs, not even talking about. <laughs> uh, they got there in 2016, 2017. So Wall got them to the second round. Yeah, that had to have been if it was 16, Wall had to be there. See, that, yeah, that was uh, Beal. Uh, hold on a sec. Yeah, Wall. Yep, Beal, Wall, Otto Porter. That was the big three that year. Right, exactly. So 2016 is the, the last time 2017, they, the 16-17 season. Is the last time they got out of the first round of the playoffs. They beat the Hawks in the first round, and they went seven games with the Isaiah Thomas Celtics. Okay. That's the last time they got to the uh, second, second round. round. When's the last time? They went to the playoffs last year, right? They played the Sixers. Or was that two years that ago? That was two years ago. So two years ago, they played the Sixers. Then... They actually went to the semifinals twice in the Bradley Beal John Wall era. All right. Well, that's when. 16 and when else? Uh, You also go back to 16-17 season and the 14-15 season and then the 13-14 season. Okay, so you're going back about 10, 8 years uh, the last time they got out of the first round of the playoffs. And once they lost Wall, they've only been to the playoffs a handful of times and haven't got out of the first round. They've been back twice. He's got one of the worst contracts in the league. So Josh Harris and the Sixers really have to think, do I really want to take a contract on where he is in the first season of a five-year, $251 million deal? That contract is horrendous. But got to worth, you got to note this. Joel Embiid, how much would he push the Sixers to try to trade for Bradley Beal? And you know Bradley Beal is not going to go out of his way to negotiate a contract that's going to get him paid less if he doesn't have to. He's not going to be like, oh, yeah, I'll give away, give away money. No way. So because there will be other teams interested in his services. Exactly. There's the problem. But here's the interesting part. The Wizards, according to Shams, the Wizards and Beal and some others, by the way, will work together to find a trade. But Brian Windhorst today was talking about this, um, about what kind of return Bradley Beal might get back in return from a team that is trading for him. So, hey, I'm the Sixers. I call up the Wizards. Hey, what are you guys looking for? Here's Brian Windhorst. I just think over the last three or four years when we've heard Bradley Beal rumors, I don't think they've ever been super legitimate. But I do think right now, before the draft, if they're going to do it, it would be now. And I think that the Heat would be at the front of it. And I'm going to tell you, if Bradley Beal gets traded between now and next Thursday, I think people are going to be very surprised at the price 
Mm. and how potentially low it's going to be mm. because his contract is not attractive, especially going forward, uh, what it would mean to have a $50 million player on your team that may not be you know, a first or second uh, all-NBA type player. Yeah, not a first or second all-NBA type player. How low the return might be is what Brian Windhorst said. So the interesting part about that is, okay, how low the return might be, what's low? What does... What constitutes a low return is just, hey, you take Tobias Harris, is that low? No first-round picks. That's the first thing, right? If you're a team, why would you ever trade a first-round pick for a guy who's paid that much? Well, it doesn't sound like they're getting that type of offer. But what I'm saying is is that, you know, if you're not, you know, for exa- just to use the example there's rumors out there about Zion Williamson's future, right? You're going to get a first-round pick if you trade for Zion. If you trade for Bradley Bill, you're not getting a first-round pick. Right. No, that's what I'm saying is it doesn't sound like the Wizards who have made him available. I don't. It doesn't sound like anyway that they're getting phone calls that are saying, hey, we're willing to give you a big package for this player. What are you looking for? No, it sounds like people are calling and saying, hey, we have interest in Beal, but this is all we're willing to give you. Right. So – According to Kyle Newbeck, who covers the Sixers for Philly Voice, uh, he writes uh, an article today that really the Sixers don't seem to have any interest in Bradley Beal. Does that encourage you that there's that you feel like maybe they're savvy enough to say, hey, we want to steer clear of this? Well, there's a couple things from that that I break down now. OK, one, uh, Kyle Newbeck says Bradley Beal has been a hot name in the rumor mill. Um, but the speculation and connection to the Sixers that they're not going to trade for him. So he, he maps out a couple of reasons why um, they wouldn't trade for him. And, you know, costs the giant salary that he has uh, is one, obviously. But, you know, many people have looked at this whole situation And we discussed it a little bit yesterday, but I want to bring it back up today, which is if you trade Tobias Harris for Bradley Beal, the money works, okay? So the money works in that situation. You now have this Bradley Beal contract you're stuck with for four more seasons, three of which you're paying him over 50 million dollars a year so one you're paying him more than you're paying Joel Embiid that's preposterous it's unacceptable two now you're stuck with him for four years he better be the be all end all to the end he better be finally the answer to the puzzle and I don't think that he really would be I think Bradley Beal's more of the third guy than he is the second guy would we agree on that I definitely agree on that okay So you have two options here. You have adding Bradley Beal and having him play as the Murray to Embiid, basically. He would be the Sixers version of Murray. Correct. Not as good. I would would rather then stay with Maxie as that guy. The other thing is, would I rather just keep Harris, let his contract fade, and then open up the cap space 
and then I can try to do something the following year. You know, Paul Hudrick, um, who joins us, of course, during the Sixers season, he tweeted this out earlier today. He says, I get why folks aren't into the idea of a, quote, gap year. Fiscally, if you can't retain Harden, it makes the most sense. But I have a hard time believing that the reigning MVP who will turn 30 next season would be into that. So that's what you're balancing. If Harden walks, do you just tell Embiid, "Mm, we're kind of hitting the pause button for the year? I don't think that works for him or the fans. And I think that's the problem. You either got to be all in or not in at all. And I don't think you hire a guy like Nick Nurse for a pause year. Exactly. That's another point. Now, they did make an interesting hire today. I don't know if anybody saw this out there. Um, they added to their coaching staff. And, you know, one of the things with this hire um, is uh, Rico Hines is the gentleman's name. Sorry. Is that he is thought to be one of these like top level development guys very good at developing young players in fact there's a lot of people you know the Sixers lost Sam Cassell to the Celtics and there are you know people like oh Sam Cassell was a good coach he had a good relationship with Maxie he had a good relationship with Harden there's a lot of people out there that actually feel that this is an upgrade over Sam Cassell in the player development role, this Rico Hines who is going to join Nick Nurse's staff. And I say when I look at coaching and the impact that I find coaching has, it's more important in that vein to me than it is on game night. I would much rather have a guy who's an all-star on non-game days as a coach than he is on game night. If that makes sense. No, it does. Because what you're saying is is that you need your coach to get your guys ready for the game more so than if he's giving out X's nose. Well, I also need a coach who can help get the best out of the guys I have. I also need a coach that can help take my guy from all-star to superstar. From, you know, borderline all-star to all-star. I need that guy that says maxi. There's more in there. I can get it out of you. Not just be content on the Maxi that I have, but finding what more Maxi has in him. So I'm reading a lot of this stuff on Beald this morning, and the more and more and more that I read that contract, and I like Be- uh, Beal. But you don't Not like him at that price tag. No. No, and I say I like Beal. I don't love Beal. I mean, to me, Beal is a losing player. He is a good player on a bad team. He's never elevated that team. He's never made that team better. His numbers are going down. The last two years, his shooting has gone down. It just it just sounds like... Now, Dame Lillard, for instance, okay? They didn't make the playoffs. They not had a lot of playoff success. Yet, Dame Lillard still got that team to the playoffs consistently... And he took him to the conference finals one year. That's correct. He has more of a track record of getting to the playoffs and playing well in the playoffs and helping his team win playoff series. Do I think Dame Lillard's the best player on the team that wins a championship? Not necessarily, but he can be what Murray was to Jokic for any team in this league. 
I'm not sure Beal's that guy. Yeah, well, Lillard is also a, just a better player in general, and I think that's the problem. Right, but I'm talking the, about a player who's the best player on what is perceived to be not a very good team. And I right. think Beal is more, I'm the best player on a bad team, then I can go to your team and help make your team better. Mm-hmm. I think the Sixers get Beal. We're still talking about a lot of issues. And right. one of those issues is, I'm paying that guy an astronomical amount of money. I'll give you one more issue that I mentioned last night on game night here on 97.3. One of my issues with Beal is his size. I don't think you need another small guy in that backcourt. Yeah, but you like Van Vliet, don't you? I don't like Van Vliet either. Oh, I thought you were somebody on the Van Vliet wagon. No, to me, one of the values of a James Harden is that he's about 6'5", 6'6", and he's a big guy. He's not a string bean. So... You're putting a guy on the perimeter who he may not be very good defensively, but at least he's going to give you a little bit of size. If you have a backcourt with Van Vliet or Beal paired with Maxi, you're getting real tiny. Yeah, that's been one of the problems I have with anybody paired with Maxi because he's not your point guard. He's really your off guard, right. and he's a very undersized, kind of like Iverson was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, text board 609-403-0973. Mike probably have to include Maxi in a deal for Beal. I don't think so. No, Not according to all. what you just heard from Windhorses. Don't expect a lot in return. That contract, dude, is so bad that teams around the league are saying, you want to get out of that contract. You need to get out of that contract. Right. So I'm not giving you anything of value to get out of that deal. Now, I might give you Tobias Harris. You could take his bad contract. The, the Sixers would have to weigh is getting out from, and I say it's not out from under Harris's contract anymore because they only have it for one more year. It's not like you're stuck with the Harris deal for multiple years. At the end of this year, that Harris deal is finally done. But the Sixers would need to weigh, hey, do we just want to stick it out with Maxi, Harris, Embiid, Hard and possibly for one more year with a new coach. Because what they basically said this season was the team was good enough, but the coach got fired because we thought that maybe we could have gone farther. Correct. That's essentially the message, right? That's the message. If the that's message. your message, yes. you change the coach. Do you not? Do you? Why change the players? Right. You absolve the players of their wrongdoing by firing the coach. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't trade Tobias Harris anyway because you could trade him for somebody else you know i know the the one common guy people talk about is another expiring contract pascal siakam up there in toronto if toronto wants to go in a different direction because van vliet left does toronto basically decide to tank and move on from siakam their contracts are almost the same you know that's a guy you go out there and get but you know so it doesn't have to be just bradley beal with a tobias harris trade but you're not to me you didn't hire nick nurse to let they then trade Maxi, because guess what? Now Maxi's not getting traded. Nick Nurse says he wants looking forward to coaching it. I'll give you the percentage chance Maxi gets traded. Zero point zero. No chance. No chance Maxi gets traded. None. Uh, unless Michael Jordan was in his prime, that would be the one chance, and that's not happening. No, Maxi's not getting traded. Um, the one guy that I think could get traded this offseason is Harris, obviously because of the contractual situation. Uh, sign and trade with ha- with Harden. Yep. That would be a possibility. Um, other than that, jeez, I mean, they just, like, they got creative a couple offseasons ago. They traded Al Horford. They traded Richardson. 
Last year, they traded Danny Green. I don't really even, I mean, could you trade PJ Tucker? Eh, I don't think anybody's like banging down your door to take on the last two years of that deal. I think that Tucker stays and Harris is not here next year. 609-403-0973. Got some text messages coming in. Thoughts on the Sixers. How many people out there, right? How many people out there are interested in Bradley Beal, even at that price tag? I'm starting to say, you know what? It's like walking into one of these fancy coffee shops. It's like the coffee's good, but it's not $8 good. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, I like a cup of coffee. Believe me, I'm a cup of Joe kind of guy. But you start to inch up towards $7 for a cup of coffee, and I'll just stick with Tobias Harris, all right? I'll go back to Dunkin' Donuts and get mine for overly priced four. <laughs> More sports bash coming up on 97.3 ESPN. Thousand. Now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bash on 97.3 ESPN. We have a U.S. Open first-timer hosting this event, which gets underway tomorrow in L.A., Mike Gill on the Sports Bash with you, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Cam Rogers, believe, of course, their golf expert, going to give us the lowdown on everything that's happening at the U.S. Open. There's an event that is overshadowing the other news in golf. We had Cam on last week to kind of break down what happened with the Live PGA and All Golf World merger. And at that time, we were just kind of like at blown away that it actually happened so i guess we'll kick it off with that as cam rogers is back with us here on the sports bash live on 97.3 espn and at the time cam we weren't really sure of what this meant and what it was going to do do we have any clear picture in your mind uh how this because uh, this will be a big topic of conversation i'm sure it has this week uh where this is going what we've now learned from the last time we had you on yeah, so Mike, good to be with you, sir. Listen, I don't think we know a lot as far as how this whole thing is going to look. And I say that because Congress is now getting involved. And I am more bearish now than I was a week ago about whether this deal is even going to go through, right? I mean, we have senators right now with some really serious rhetoric out there talking about how this is dangerous from an antitrust perspective. You know, people are throwing around comparisons like when American Airlines and JetBlue wanted to merge. You saw in the original press release from the PGA Tour, the redaction of the word merge. So the PGA Tour is trying to save itself right now, trying to publicly say this is not a merger whatsoever. This is a partnership or what have you. So they're trying to allow for this deal to go through. I'm a little bit more pessimistic about this thing actually happening, Mike. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that's an interesting development there because a lot of people, hey, what's going to happen? Is the tour is going to stay separate. What's going to happen with the TV deals? Who's going to be here? Who's going to be there? What happened to the guys who were offered money to go? It seemed yeah. that, you know, 
uh, the deal ended up having to be inevitable because Liv was not going anywhere, and they still had the money to just keep you know purging and purging and purging. So if the deal doesn't go through, would we be getting? Would we begin to see maybe a slow death for the PGA Tour? I can't believe I'm saying this, but yes. Yes, because we'd be exactly where we were prior as far as these lawsuits between these two parties, Liv versus the PGA Tour. We know who will win that battle. It is Liv because their money is just endless. $600 billion in assets do PIF does PIF have, the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. So the PGA Tour would just run out of money. And they already are struggling financially because they're pulling out of their reserves to pay more money during these elevated events. So that's why, in theory, Jay Monahan welcomed the Saudis to the table to negotiate because of this dire situation that the PGA Tour was in financially. And now if this deal doesn't go through, you're right. Slow and painful death of the tour. And I don't want that. Nobody wants that. I want the best possible product out there on the golf course. And we will get that if this new golf entity actually goes through. But there are concerns now from a legislative standpoint whether it actually will go through. Well, uh, this is one of the weekends where you do get the best, and everybody will be out there. So let's take a look at some of the storylines. Cam Rogers is with us to look at this year's uh, U.S. Open. It's at the L.A. County, uh, the L.A. Country Club for the first time. So give us a little insight on what the viewers are going to get to expect from this first-time course. Yeah, first time since 1950-something when it hosted a U.S. junior amateur event. So really, this is a relative unknown. And so for a lot of the golfers, in fact, 99.9% of them, they are playing catch-up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, doing their research. I say 99.9% because this course actually did host the 2017 Walker Cup match. Colin Morikawa was there. Scotty Scheffler was there. But the golf course was a little bit different there six years ago par 70 7400 yards very long golf course it's going to make you think though this is a thinker's track i talk about how there are so many blind tee shots on this golf course that you have to trust your line and again that goes back to doing your research on monday tuesday and wednesday where are you going to hit this tee shot then you got to trust it because you're not going to see it land and so that is the thinking part of this golf course also five par threes One of them, 290 yards. That's ridiculous. Three par fives, by the way, which is kind of unique for a par 70. So I think it's going to be a similar vibe to the country club in Brookline last year, but also some elements of Augusta National mixed in as well. A lot of undulations, hilliness. You think flatness when you think L.A., but not in this scenario. It's going to be a really interesting track here this week. And I think really any style of golfer could play well here. Uh, Cam Rogers with us, uh, looking at the U.S. Open. Uh, ninth time Phil Mickelson will attempt, uh, to be finishing his career grand slam. He's 53 years old. I do hear he's in very good shape. Uh, apparently lost a lot. My buddy's out there walking the course, uh, with him today. He, he's, you know, following around. I think he's with, uh, Rom. Is he, is he playing with Rom? Uh, he's following him around, uh, today. He said, man, Mickelson looks like he lost 100 pounds. So 53-year-old Phil Mickelson trying to complete the Grand Slam. Uh, What kind of story uh, is he going to be this week? Well, you know, he's interesting because he's got that nice tied for second finish at the Masters. And that tells me that he is not going away quietly in terms of contending in majors. We thought that PGA Championship 
back in 2021 was just an anomaly because it really truly did come out of nowhere. Hasn't had a top 10 in a major since 2016 at that point. Now he's got that tied for second at the Masters. It makes me wonder if this is a golf course that maybe could suit Phil. This actually might be his best shot at the career Grand Slam from a golf perspective, golf course perspective, because this course makes you think. You got to shape your shots. You got to be really good with your short game. You got to think your way around this golf course. You got to be an artist. You got to paint a canvas around this track. That screams Phil Mickelson to me, right? Typically, you know, he played well at Wingfoot and what have you, but those really weren't tracks for Phil where you need that automatic robotic ball striking. Not the case here this week. I think he actually could be a story come Sunday. We shall see. All right. Uh, another story will be the defending champion, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, looks to become the eighth guy to win back-to-backs. Uh, give us your thoughts on how he factors into this field. Yeah, you know, I mentioned it. Very much similar L.A. Country Club is to Brookline of last year, where, of course, Matt Fitzpatrick won the U.S. Open. His game this year isn't as good as I would like. He's a little bit volatile right now. He won the RBC Heritage. He was T9 at the Memorial. So I would say he is flying under the radar a little bit. We know how hard it is to successfully defend at a major championship. We'll see. He's a little bit shorter than what I want off the tee, right? It's a par 70, but it is 7,400 yards. So it's going to be a test for the guys who are shorter off the tee. I think he's a safe bet for a top 30, top 20 finish, but I don't know how much money you're really going to make off of that. He's not my pick to win. He's not my guy in terms of the power rankings this week. He's not inside my top 10. All right, uh, and we'll get your lock-it-in picks here, uh, guys, to watch from Cam Rogers in just a minute. But, Cam, Roy McElroy, man, he's been, of course, uh, at the front of the media, and uh, he canceled his media availability. Everybody wanted to hear what he had to say. Nope, mm-hmm. locked in. Is he locked in for you? He is. I think he's locked in for a top 10 finish here this week. Would not be surprised to see him win the U.S. Open here this week. It's very clear he is done with the live PGA Tour thing. He knows it's affecting his mental game. He doesn't want to talk about it. I totally respect that decision to cancel his media availability yesterday. T9, T7, T7 across his last three starts. Four straight top nine finishes at the U.S. Open. But the problem is, Mike... Do you really remember him truly contending at any of those U.S. Opens? He always gets these backdoor top tens at major championships with these big charges on Sunday, but he's never truly in contention. I think he can be this week. Of course, he hasn't won a major since 2014. It's been some time, but he is inside my top ten this week. I like him for a lock for a top ten finish. Okay, well, there is uh, a little insight on one of the guys uh, he likes inside the top ten. Who are the guys who can, in your mind, win on this course? Well, I really love Xander Shoffley. I think he is 1B on my list to get it done here at the U.S. Open. Number one player in strokes game total at U.S. Opens over the last five years. His worst finish is 14th at a U.S. Open. He's built for these golf courses. Third in bogey avoidance over the last 50 rounds. Keep an eye on him here this week. Really love Justin Rose as a dark horse. This is a guy who has a career resurgence going on right now. His best iron play since the 2015 season. 12, uh, three straight top 12 finishes on the PGA Tour. 12th on tour in strokes game total. Of course, he won earlier this year at Pebble Beach. He's a guy to keep an eye on. And we've talked about him before on your show. 
Ricky Fowler. He's been top 20 in seven of his last eight starts on the PGA Tour. I think he is back. He could certainly contend here this week, coming off a top 10 at the Memorial as well, which is a major championship type of feel. Really like Ricky Fowler this week. Oh, man, it's good to hear Ricky's name back. I feel like he has been out of the mix for way too long. Cam Rogers is with us and uh, right now. By the way, 11 of 14 open winners are first-time major champions. So will that trend continue? Who do you got? Lock it in. Yes, it will. Patrick Cantlay is going to win the U.S. Open this week. He has yet to miss a cut in the last five U.S. Opens. One of six players in this field who ranks above average in driving distance, driving accuracy, strokes gained approach, strokes gained around the green. He leads the tour in total driving, leads the tour in the all-around ranking. California kid, he knows this Bermuda grass well. I think he's going to show out. I think he's finally going to break through on the major championship stage, Patrick Cantlay is my pick to win. Cam Rogers at Cam Rogers live on Twitter. Uh, lock it in as he has Patrick Cantlay winning it all. The U.S. Open tomorrow morning, 945 in the East is when you can see it tee off. Do you have a favorite pairing that you will be locked in on tomorrow? Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka. I mean, you've got the torch holder of the PGA Tour and really the face of Liv right now. It's going to be interesting, those two going at it on Thursday and Friday. I'm going to hedge a guess. They won't talk a lot, though, Mike. <laughs> yes. Uh, was that, like, pulled out of a hat or a dart throw? How did those two get put together? Just random? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was on purpose. Yeah, USGA did a good job with that one. Cam Rogers, everybody, U.S. Open. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Cam, as always, good stuff on the golf as he brings it here on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. The conversation at the front, the PGA Tour live golf deal. Yep, you're getting politics involved. The senators want to know what's going on over there. Why did you decide uh, to merge with these people in the live world. I want to know. I want to know. And we had Cam on last week. You remember that first reaction? He gave us some good stuff. And now he's saying after listening to all this and hearing it, he's not all that sure that this deal is actually going to happen. So that's something to keep an eye on. He likes Patrick Cantlay. I like the fact that he brought my man Ricky Fowler back into the mix. You know, Fowler, he had a great year like three years ago. Uh, he is like one of those baseball players. Like he had the Nick Castellanos year a couple of years ago. He was like top five every single major in, in all the events. And I don't think he has had a good year since that time. He has just completely fallen off the map. But U.S. Open, uh, it is this weekend. It starts tomorrow. And as he heard that, um, Rory pairing there, um, that should be a lot of fun to watch, uh, those guys, um, paired up as well so good stuff from cam rogers here on the sports bash live on 97.3 espn the 97.3 espn free mobile app all right we got a lot more to do we got football at four coming up also uh, we talked a little bit about bradley beal we'll get some updates on that a little bit later on in the show we got sound of the day also uh who was under the most pressure to win an nba title you guys can text that in at 609-403 0973 as we take you till six o'clock tonight. Well, basketball's done. The offseason's here. Hockey's done. The offseason's here. The Flyers already made one big move. Do they have another move up their sleeve? We'll be keeping our eyes on the fly guys, our Flyers insider. 
Kevin Durso over at 973ESPN.com has all the flyer stuff for you. Keith Smith tonight. We'll talk a little bit about the NBA offseason. And everybody's got their eyes now on the Sixers and how they're going to tweak or rehaul or rebuild or reload or whatever this roster. we got a lot of time to talk about it all right here on the Sports Bash Live on 97.3 ESPN. Now, for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. 348 on the Sports Bash Live. 97.3 ESPN, the free mobile app. Hey, I've been telling you about my friends at Trio North Wildwood American Cuisine with the global flair. And guess what? The weekend is almost here. We made it to Wednesday, so why not Why not make reservations for this weekend? You can make those reservations through Resi. They're open Thursday through Saturday from the start of June. And starting next week, they'll start opening on Wednesday, June 21st. They'll be expanding their service to six days a week, and you can stop on in with friends and family, make a spot for graduation party, first date, an anniversary. Whatever you're looking for, my guys at Trio North Wildwood will take care of you. Book on Resi. Reservations are recommended. Or call 609-796-2446. Make the most of their extended hours and get your party, your date, your anniversary right there. Tell Chef Gus and the team at Resi we said hello. 700 North New Jersey Avenue in North Wildwood. I had the pork chop. I recommend it. I also had a couple of the, I basically tried all of the different appetizers they had on the menu. My favorite was that pizza. That flatbread pizza they have is flipping outstanding. But I know uh, some of the other people in my party, uh, we had had a table of four, and we all got something different. We all got a different appetizer, so we were able to try everybody's stuff. So I had a chance to sample all the stuff there, and I can kind of give you my rankings, but... uh, I went with the pork chop. I don't order pork chop at a restaurant. It's just not something I generally do. They told me to go that way. Oh, what should I get? Pork chop. Also, the meatloaf's pretty good. I didn't get the meatloaf because it wasn't on the menu when I went, but it is now on the menu. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Um, Man, we can go in so many different directions. I got so many different topics kind of bouncing around my head right now. One of them is the draft that is coming up next week. You know, the Sixers don't have a pick in the draft. Do you remember when the draft used to be like the Sixers celebration? It is just not the draft without the Sixers being in the draft. There were nights. There were parties. There were historic events. And the Sixers were getting ready for the NBA draft. And now they don't even have a pick in the draft. doesn't seem right. They've traded so many picks away. But I am a fan of the draft. I love the draft. NBA, NFL, whatever draft night, because that's a night where things can happen. That's a night where movers can be shakers. And we're hearing a lot of stuff. 
Zion Williamson's name is getting brought up. You know, Zion, the guy that I said that will never help a team win a championship, so far he's proven me to be right. Will he prove me to be wrong at some point? Well, I think he's actually in a good spot in New Orleans. That's a good team with him. They got a good team with Ingram and, of course, C.J. McCollum. So if I'm Zion, do I want to be traded? Do I want to go to a team because they're talking about trading him possibly to a team that has a high first-round pick, which means he's probably going to go to a team that's not very good. So if I'm Zion, am I trying to get out of New Orleans and go to a bad team? I mean, look, where could he be traded? I don't know. Could they possibly look to send him to, like, a Houston? Now, if he goes to Houston, that's a good young team. But then you go back to the question that we asked when you drafted Zion, one that I said the answer is no. Can Zion be the best player on the team that wins a championship? I don't think he can be. But that's a team that has been talked about. Houston wants a star. They want to be relevant again. And you can only, as the Sixers find out, you can only draft in the first round so many times. And if you miss and there's not a great player, the Rockets have got their guy. Now it's time to start doing what the Sixers did. When they got Joel Embiid, they finally got their guy. And at the time, as much as you guys hate Ben Simmons, they they had Ben Simmons and he was pretty good for at least a three- or four-year window. So when they got those two guys, the next step was, let's go get J.J. Redick. Let's get a veteran player to kind of put him around here. That's what the Rockets are looking to do now. The Rockets got their guy, right? They finally have that guy in the draft that they can say, um, he's our guy. He, he's the guy that we're going to kind of you know, build this team around with um, uh, Green. So the next step for them is, okay, do they go out and get a Zion? But how interesting is it that you are in a situation, if you're the Rockets, that, I mean, uh, New Orleans, that you did everything you could to try to get Zion, right? You, you get the first pick of the draft. They go get David Griffin. Let's do this. Let's get Zion. This was going to change the organization. Does that organization feel changed because of that pick? Not really. Not really. It's a shame. I think the league needed Zion to be bigger than he was or is. He has been a complete nothing burger in this league. For the hype that he had when he entered the league coming out of college to what he has delivered. Now, when he has been on the court, I will say this. When Zion has played, he has been better than I thought he would be. I didn't think he was going to be nearly the player that he is. He is better statistically, for whatever that's worth, than I thought he would be. I thought he would have a lot of trouble. And listen, he might be really good in the regular season, Zion, but could he be a very good player in the postseason? Think about Tyrese Maxey, and I'm not comparing them. But Maxey's really good in the regular season, getting to the rim. There's nobody really there in the paint pushing him out of the way on Tuesday night in February. My problem with Zion was he's a little undersized. You know, he didn't see a lot of big guys in college to block his shot or challenge his shot. Come playoff time, though, is he going to get challenged a little bit more? So I think as we get closer to the draft, we'll start to talk more about the draft and some things that can happen that can really shake things up. 
possible Zion Williamson trade could be something to tune in on draft night. And you can hear the NBA draft June 22nd right here on 97.3 ESPN. That's one of the things I love about the NBA. The season ends and then the draft. And then you know what my favorite time of the year is? Summer League. I love the Summer League. July 7th through the 17th. Summer League gets here, although the Sixers, who's going to be on their Summer League team? They didn't draft anybody. They don't want anybody on the team. Sports Bash Live, Football at Four is coming up next. Jeff Mosher's in the house today. Stick around. 97.3 ESPN presents the Sports Bash with Mike Gill. It's time for Football at Four with Jeff Mosher. My personality is I, I want to win badly. I want to win more Lombardis for Philadelphia and our fans. we got the greatest fans around, and I will do everything possible. Powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Now, live from inside the Matt Black Kia Studios. This is Football at Four. And Football at Four is powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. Adam Kaplan and Jeff Mosher's in the house today. Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. Talk to Mosher, a little football. You know, earlier today I was uh, on Birds 365 with McMullen and Jody Mack, and we were talking about some of the, you know, off-season things between now and then. The Eagles have typically over the years made some late season moves is there anything that they still have up their sleeve that they can do and where are those spots that possibly they can add some talent we'll dive into some of that you know the running back room it's something that Nick Sirianni talked about when you look at the running back room for the Philadelphia Eagles uh, it's an area that's going to have a completely new look to sh- well, I don't want to say completely new look but you got two new faces in Swift and of course, um, uh, Rashad Penny, you get those two guys in the running back room, how that changes. We talked a little bit about that with Moshe on Monday. You know, the other thing is at wide receiver, uh, Omidas Zacchaeus, you know, you look at that situation with him and Quez Watkins. Could the Eagles potentially add a, another wide receiver to the wide receiver room? Dan Arnold brought in to play tight end. Is he going to be a factor in that tight end room? Uh, and then, of course, the big story, I don't say the big story, this isn't like Channel 6 Action News here, when we're talking about right guard, but I think that right guard spot, we, we got a little clue, and I talked about this this morning, in that Cam Jurgens, right, many people thought that he may be the guy that gets that left guard spot, or that right guard spot, but as Mosher talked about earlier this week, Jurgens was taking snaps at center. So, does that necessarily mean that the Eagles value him more as the backup or the second center, or do they want him to win that right guard spot? So, we talked about that with Adam yesterday. And one of the things, Jeff Mosher, that Adam Kaplan, your colleague over at uh, InsideTheBirds.com and the Inside the Birds podcast said, is that he thought that Tyler Steen uh, for them is the heavy favorite to win that right guard spot. You know, that's the guy that they want to win that job. And I thought that was kind of interesting because we kind of think that this is going to be a wide open battle. And then when you mentioned the other day, you know, that Jurgens got the snaps at center, I thought to myself, well, if you want to have this guy be in play for that spot, do you want him? Because, and I, and I, I phrase it like this, Mosh, we know mm-hmm. when there's an injury on the Eagles offensive line, they don't generally like to move two players. They only like, you know right. what I'm saying? So yeah. if let's say Kelsey got hurt, 
They don't want to move Jurgens from right guard to center and then have to put a new guard in because that's two new pieces. So does that mm-hmm. insight, does that give us a little clue at maybe the way the Eagles are thinking about that right guard spot? Yeah, I mean, I think it folds into all of the reasons that they would want Tyler Steen to win that job, why they drafted him in the third round, uh, knowing that he had short arms and probably projected to guard. Uh, certainly the best player, Mike, I think at the end of the day will win. But but I would say Cam Jurgens has to have clearly proved that he is a better right guard for the offensive line, uh, for now, for the, you know, a year from now, whatever, that, that for them to believe that he would be the best candidate. He has to outplay Tyler Steve. Um, and that's going to be a little bit difficult, I think, because because they, A, already kind of view him as a center and, and the heir apparent to Jason Kelsey, and B, he's just, he's not as big of a guy uh, as, as Tyler Steen is. He's only played offensive line for two years as opposed to Steen, who's always been an offensive lineman. So uh, the, the, I don't want to say the cards are stacked against him. He, he has looked good last year in playing center, right? So if you can look good at playing center, you can probably look good in playing guard. But again, you have to take the whole line into account. And if you have an undersized center in Jason Kelsey, and that's a position where you're doing a lot of combo blocking, and then you know you leave your your combo block to block somebody else, well, you got to leave that somebody else to someone who can hold up. And I would I would think that they believe Tyler Steen is more equipped to hold up uh, on a big guy like say Dexter Lawrence, right at the Giants, than Cam Jurgen. Yeah, I, I agree there. And, you know, Jurgens getting those reps as the center uh, when Kelsey was out the other day. I don't know if that kind of foreshadows or gives us any clues there. But we all know um, that he would be the backup center and he's the heir apparent at that spot. So it looks like, uh, as Adam said yesterday, that Steen would be the favorite uh, to win that spot there. I want to talk a little bit between now and when training camp starts. Um, we know this team has been known to kind of add some pieces and do some things. Uh, are there any of the glaring spots that you still think that Howie would do something between now and training camp? Or do you think they will be radio silent between now and when camp kicks off? That's a good point. You know, um, I think they have a glaring need, well, a, a glaring area of concern at linebacker, but I'm not sure that they would do anything there as far as street free agent signing, Mike, before training camp. I think that's an area that they could address during or right after cutdowns. But, you know, they did kick the tires on um, DJ Fluker recently. And you're always looking for offensive linemen who can come in, and, and especially veteran offensive linemen. The Eagles like to have veteran offensive line depth. They do have Fred uh, Johnson. Uh, and they have a somebody else whose name is escaping me right now, you know, as a veteran. But, I mean, I, the fact that they were kicking the tires on G.J. Fluker makes me think that between now and training camp, it wouldn't surprise me if they signed a veteran offensive lineman. Uh, we talked about this. I was uh, with Jody and John this morning. It was an interesting question, and, and I'll see if your answer matches mine. Jody asked me, Crystal Ball, uh, who are the Eagles' starting linebackers in week number one? Uh, I'm, I just want to hear what your answer is before I give you mine. Yeah, it's really funny because somebody else asked me this today in an interview, and I said, uh, we, we talked about how, for whatever reason, with the Eagles a couple times the last few years, the starting linebackers that started week one were not the best linebackers on the team and weren't the starting linebackers by week six, seven, or even later. So if we're going by history, I kind of get the lean that the starting linebackers will be N'Kobe Dean and Nick Morrow. 
But let's see how Christian Ellis does. Let's see how he competes. Let's see if he can prove himself and and make it so that it's a decision for the coaches. But even if he does that, you know, if you go back, I think, two years ago, I think after OTAs and training camp, it was pretty clear that T.J. Edwards was playing pretty well, and it really started to develop. And yet they had signed Eric Wilson. You know, he was more of a veteran. He had played in the league. And, of course, Eric Wilson got the start alongside Alex Singleton. But the defense wasn't very good, especially against the run. And it wasn't long before T.J. Edwards got in there, you guys remember. And when when, when T.J. Edwards started to play, it was almost like, what took you so long to get this guy in here? I mean, he was clearly an upgrade. So I would almost answer that by saying it almost doesn't matter who starts week one. Whatever the best combination is, you hope that the Eagles figure that out sooner than later, and not after it cost them a few games. Yeah. My answer was it was N'Kobe Dean and somebody who's not here. How probable do you think someone who's not here is the answer to the question? You know, I think there, there are, uh, I don't know, you know, 40% chance. I mean, it kind of depends on who gets, who's out there after cutdowns and how familiar they are with the system. And then, you know, are the Eagles happy or not happy with what they saw from the Morrow-Ellis-Dean combination. So it, it's kind of hard right now. But I certainly think it'll be an area that they look at based on what they see from their linebacking core in training camp. Jeff Mosher, Football at Four, Inside the Birds podcast. And, of course, uh, you take a look at, um, you know, we, we go through a lot um, of this roster and where this roster is. As we are at this stage of the summer, um, is this roster for you entering camp a more complete, better roster than the roster they had last year? Or do you like the team where they were last year uh, ahead of this one? Oh, heck no. I don't know how you can. Uh, listen, I think the Eagles are going to be good, but I don't know how you can look at the, the defense this year and, you know, have the same expectations last year after losing, you know, guy, like a guy like TJ Edwards, a guy like Javon Hargrave, a guy like CJ Gardner Johnson, Marcus Epps, and replacing them with guys who, again, I, I get that, you know, TJ and, and, um, TJ Edwards and Marcus Epps were also sort of in that boat a year or two ago and really stepped into big roles and became prominent. But I, I don't know that you can guarantee that uh, for the same things for Nick Morrow, Christian Ellis, Sidney Brown as a rookie, uh, you know, even Terrell Edmonds, who's been a good player, but nothing like C.J. Gardner-Johnson has. I mean, I just think you have a whole lot more uncertainty up the middle of your defense. Yeah, and I asked that question based on I was reading the other day, uh, ESPN.com ranked the rosters, the 32 rosters, and they have the Eagles roster ranked as the third best roster in football, and I'm imagining that this time last year uh, it was not seen the same way. Right, right. And, and you know, that's just comparing the Eagles to other teams, not last year's team, which was maybe their best. Even though they didn't win the Super Bowl, it's very, very possible that could have been the best roster in team history. So um, it's still a good enough team. I mean, I, I think you can take the Eagles, the 49ers, and I'm going to get slack for this, but Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> put them in a blender, right, pick the team, after you turn the blender on and if the paper isn't too shredded, read it and say, yeah, that team can, can very well represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. And there are some other, you know, the Lions are on the come up. We know, we know about them. And Seattle. We about Seattle. But I, I think those from a 53-man standpoint are the three best 
53s um, in the NFC. Yeah, well, and it's funny because when we looked at the Major League Baseball season in and back in March, uh, you know, I said, hey, the six teams in the National League that made the playoffs last year, they look like the clear teams to get back. Well, four of those teams are not in the playoffs right now, one of which is the Cardinals. They're the worst team in the National League. So I wonder... Yeah. Uh, which team do we think is going to be pretty good? Would you be the least surprised if they kind of fell flat on their face? I guess the Lions, just based on history, based on, you know, um, you know, they, they had, a, they obviously, they, they had a nice rally to end the year last year and finish really strong. But at the end of the day, um, superstar talent, you know, not a quarterback. They have Jared Goff, who's, you know, been good and he's been to a Super Bowl. I'm not knocking him. I'm just saying he doesn't. Right, I, I don't know that he checks that box of, you know, reliable superstar quarterback. So um, that'll that'll hold you back a little bit. And their defense really, you know, needed a whole half of a year to figure itself out last year before coming on at the end. So that would be a team that, if it didn't get better than five hundred, if it fell out of the playoff picture, wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. I, I'd have a hard time believing the Eagles, 49ers, and Cowboys won't be there. But, hey, you never know. Yep. Oh, listen, we we say, we say uh, those three seem like they're uh, at the top. I agree with you. I put the three of them. I think Dallas has gotten better. Uh, I I, I kind of like what they've done in the offseason. I like what they did in the draft. So I think today, as we're kind of sitting in this limbo period, when I'm looking through, you know, 88 days until kickoff, those 88 days start to fly training camp July 25th. I look at those three teams at the top as well. The big question mark, I guess, is San Francisco uh, at quarterback, but I guess Purdy's going to be ready to go. That sounds like it. And, you know, I don't know how many times we say the big question mark for them going into the year as quarterback, and yet at, what have they made, like four of the last five NFC championship games? True. Absolutely. Uh, what is your take, uh, Jeff Mosher, on what's happening uh, with the Giants and the Saquon Barkley situation? Kind of read some tea leaves on how on on how all of that is happening right now. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, Saquon Barkley is a pretty good dude. You know, I mean, I don't know him personally or anything like that, but he's always carried himself um, in a pretty dignified manner. And uh, I, I just from reading it from the outside, I feel like maybe he's not real happy with that reports are sort of painting him as turning down money that's funny. You know, you know, they always say, oh, well, you turn down this amount of money, and then you go see a contract, and you're like, oh, it's not really that average. For, it's that average per year, but a lot of that money is not guaranteed. So you can't really count it. But at the end of the day, he really doesn't have much leverage. There are really, really steep fines for holding out of mandatory camps. I mean, he could do it. He's still wealthy enough to handle it, but... Yeah. Um, if you do that, you might as well just be prepared to hold out the entire year, uh, like a Le'Veon Bell. And I don't know how many people are going to wind up going down the Le'Veon Bell route. You know, I don't know how many people are going to look at that. Well, he did say, say was, he did say what he did say Monday. That's a card I could play. And you're right. Would he do that? And I guess the follow up to that is, look, that's a team last year that made the playoffs. And Barkley had what 1,300 yards. If they mm-hmm. lost Barkley, what kind of team are the Giants? Well, I did a little bit of a deep dive, though, on them last year, and Barkley averaged, like, over 100 rushing yards per game and uh, over 120 total yards per game in their first nine games, and they got off to, like, a 7-2 start. You know, they were, they were the surprise team. But as that season went on, and including the playoffs, you can correct me, uh, check double-check me, I think he only carried the ball nine times in both of their playoff games, including a win 
against Minnesota, they started to phase away from having being like the the run first attack. You know, they were starting to open it up a little bit more with Daniel Jones. Uh, and I imagine that they're going to want to do that. You know, they acquired Darren Waller. They drafted Jalen Hyatt. They hope Sterling Shepard is coming back. Wandale Juan Robinson, who they drafted in the second round, who they love, uh, is coming back from a knee injury, and we'll see where he gone. So so they're bringing in passing weapons, right? You know Mike Kafka comes from the Andy Reid tree. You know Brian Dable came from Buffalo. They want to throw the ball around. I think that they would be. They would say, all right, Saquon, you know, uh, you were very important to us for – the first half of last year, but for where we're going, if you want to sit out the entire year and risk that, uh, that then you go for it. I think we're going to still be all right without you. Yeah. We'll be better with you, no doubt it, no doubt about it. But we got to kind of learn to be a not not just completely um, driven by a running back to begin with. Yeah. So I, I, I would say the Giants would be the ones to call. Saquon's bluff on his statement there. He did have panic. he did have nine carries in the two playoff games. Uh, nine against Minnesota, nine against Philadelphia. And you wonder right. if he sits out, do they go down the Dalvin Cook road and just say, you know what, we'll get a, we'll get another guy. You don't want to sign that deal? We'll go get somebody else. Thanks for playing. Yeah, I mean that, and that's basically the difficulties that running backs face these days. Is that no matter how good they are their position is seen as fungible and not difficult to replace. Even if you're not getting equal caliber, sometimes you're just looking for somebody to get you enough yards on first and second down. I mean, the, the Vikings are literally saying, Dalvin Cook's been great for us. We're all right with Alexander Madison and some other people because what we're all about right now is Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson and TJ Hawkinson and KJ Osborne or whoever it is, and maybe Jalen Rager is still part of their plans. And then they drafted um, Zay Flowers, didn't they, or or Jordan Addison, one of those two guys? Yeah, the Minnesota. And and by the way, um, they're talking. There is some talk about maybe bringing him back at a lesser number is a possibility for them as well. So keep an eye on that because right. you know right. you got same Kirk, thing with Dallas and Zeke, right? I mean, Zeke is just still out there, and, and yeah. there's been that talk too. Yep. Um, I want to, and also the other thing I wanted to uh, all the Giants front is they added Waller, and do you think getting Waller? kind of expands that offense enough to take them to another level? Um, it could, Mike. I mean, he really has to stay healthy. And, you know, it seems like he's about two years removed from having a great year, right, for his last great year. Uh, he's certainly better than anything the Giants have at that position to begin with, so that should improve him. Um, we'll see if he still has vertical ability left after some of the injuries that he's been through. But at very least, he gives you a pretty good, again, when healthy, Gives you a nice target uh, over the middle. And if he's good again and commanding some attention and can give you some good 15 to 20 yard range production, and that draws, you know, the defense's respect and that only enables you now to open it up to Jalen Hyatt or Darius Slayton, um, get the ball down the field a little bit to those guys. Well, yeah, that, that's obviously what they had in mind. I mean, I think, I think this Giants team. I, that's another team that kind of falls into the category, Mike, of maybe if they took a, a step back from last year, it wouldn't shock me because, you know, they were coming from nothing and they had a nice little run, but they're still got a far way to go. But I definitely uh, applaud their process and what they've done to try to get better on the offensive line and in their weaponry. 
Uh, good stuff. Jeff Mosher, uh, we're taking a look at the NFC East uh, throughout this summer. We'll look at all the teams in the NFC East. Washington, by the way, I think one of the things we forget about Washington, and we'll, we could dive into this a little bit later uh, and more in-depthful uh, next time around, but uh, Eric Bieniemy's there now and how he's going to impact that team. There's been a lot of reports out of Washington, players being held a lot more accountable there, and that uh, things are noticeably different on the practice field this time around. Well, someone being held accountable in Washington would be uh, definitely first, first, right? Right, first. (laughs) Jeff Mosher, everybody, from uh, Inside the Birds podcast at InsideTheBirds.com here on another edition of Football at Four on the Sports Bash live on 97.3 ESPN. All right, Mosher, thanks, buddy. Take care, Mike. And there's Jeff Mosher here on the Sports Pass Live as we talk some more football on, of course, football at four tomorrow. Andrew DeCecco is in the house. We'll, uh, you know, Andrew always writes some good off-season stuff over at InsideTheBirds.com. You should check that out. We'll talk about it here tomorrow. Sound of the day coming up. Also, Keith Smith tonight, SpotTrack.com as we'll look back at the NBA season. And then what's next for the NBA? Denver is on the NBA top of the mountain coming up at five o'clock tonight i want to take a look at who has the most pressure now that the two-time defending mvp won a title so now who's the pressure on you'll hear that coming up at five on the sports bash live on 97.3 espn and the 97.3 espn free mobile app now back For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. The 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Mike Gill with you till 6 o'clock tonight. We got the sound of the day. We got uh, Keith Smith later on tonight talking a little NBA. Thoughts on the fills. I don't think the fills lineup will be out. It's been coming out about 6.30 with these West Coast games. So tune in for game night for that. Speaking of game night, he's the host, Josh Henning. He's got my sound of the day today. What do we know? What do we got? What I got is they, on NBA today, they were reacting to the audio that you, Mike Gill, played yesterday of Doc Rivers talking about James Harden. Obviously, for those of you who didn't hear it, Doc Rivers was very open and honest in this Bill Simmons podcast. And one of the things he mentioned was about how challenging it is to coach James Harden. And Ramona Shelburn, she thinks that Doc made a very good point about Harden's style of play. And she doesn't know if that makes sense for Joel Embiid. And what he's talking about here is passing the ball with the idea that it's going to move around and it might come back to you in a catch-and-shoot situation. And that's just not how James Harden plays. Like, it's just he dribbles, he dribbles, he dribbles, and then he looks for his shot right there. But I'm telling you, we just got done watching the Denver Nuggets win a championship. 
And when you watch the Denver Nuggets play with Nikola Jokic initiating a lot of the offense as a brilliant passer, the ball moves, people are cutting and shooting. You look at Joel Embiid has not the same level of skill set as, as Nikola Jokic as a passer, but it, there's a lot of pressure on Joel Embiid to score. And when you have a player like Joel, he, you, he looks at the Denver Nuggets and says, that might be kind of fun to play like mm. that. That might be kind of fun to get people who pass the ball around, shoot, cut, and have this ball moving so he doesn't have to initiate offense like the way he does. And James Harden doesn't have to dribble for 20 seconds and sure. find a shot. Well, that's an interesting take because if you're saying that, hey, Joel Embiid's watching what they're doing and saying, hey, that might be kind of fun, you're then also anticipating or maybe expecting that Joel Embiid can make the plays that Nikola Jokic Maybe is not making. literally, but the idea that, you know, the Nuggets do move the ball around a lot. They are not a they're not a motion or a pure motion or a ISO style offense. So Well I would say I would say this. The yeah. the Sixers had a lot more ball movement in the Brown era. That's true. In fact I believe they passed the ball more than any other team in the NBA under Brett Brown. A lot of that was a lot of Fugazi stuff at the top of the key that they would start their offense off with kind of, you know, handoff here, pass there, just before they set everything up. But that being said, um, I don't know that the Sixers have the personnel to do the offense, uh, run the offense the way that Denver does. Well, again, it's not, it's not a literal running of the offense, but I think that she makes an interesting point that if Nick Nurse wants to run an offense with Joel Embiid that moves the ball more, is James Harden the right guy for that kind of offense? I don't think so. No. Uh, James Harden is a – James Harden is what he is. He is a ISO player. He was an ISO player in Houston. This is not a secret. He is an ISO. Dribble, 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 pound the ball. He is a Allen Iverson type of player, a guy who get out of my way and let me do my thing. The Sixers built an entire – heck, Houston built an entire team around him based on his skill sets. So I don't know why the Sixers or anybody else would think he's any different. Now, Doc tried to make him different because Doc, in his mind, was saying that didn't work for Houston. That's not the kind of player that you can win a championship with. But this guy's good enough that he can reinvent himself and be this type of player. And I don't think I don't think Harden fully embraced that. Kendrick Perkins, who played for Doc Rivers, you know, he has always something to say. This was his reaction to Doc Rivers' comments about James Harden. This is not like Doc to just air out one individual. And so what I got from it is that (laughs) Basically, James Harden cost him his job, and so why would he hold back? Yep. And we saw in Game 7 what happened with James Harden. He quit. He quit on Doc Rivers in Game 7. He wasn't even looking to attack the basket. And here's the problem that I have with James, and people can say what they want about Doc, but Doc made it possible to pull together and make Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen sacrifice to win the championship. And that's why he was bought to Philly. And he was probably being honest with James Harden and saying, you're not that guy that you was in Houston 
you know, a few years back, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem any coach is going to have with James Harden moving forward if he don't decide to take a lesser role and know that he's not the player that he was when he won MVPs and was leading the league in scoring. Well, that's uh, interesting because here you have Kendrick Perkins, a player, and he is basically saying this former player um, is – essentially he, he sounded like he was taking Doc Rivers' side. Yeah. Like, hey, Doc Rivers got Garnett, Allen, and Pierce to change their roles for the betterment of the team to win a championship. They won a title. James Harden should be listening and acknowledging in his own mind that he's not the same player that he was. And if Allen, Pierce, and Garnett were willing to change their roles, so too should James Harden. Now, on top of all that, Brian Windhorst chimed in because, you know, Brian Windhorst had Nick Nurse, the Sixers' current head coach, on the Hoop Collective podcast. And Windhorst has questions, does Harden even want to play in Nurse's system? Take a listen. On my podcast, Hoop Collective, we just had Nick Nurse, the brand new head coach of Mm -hmm. the Sixers, Doc's replacement. And one of the things he talked about was his recent meetings with James Harden, where he was talking to him about what the offense would look like, because they are pitching James Harden a vision, a vision of how the offense might be different. Now, I don't know if James is going to want to play the way Nick Nurse wants to play either, because I still think, as uh, Nurse has said, you know, in his press conference, Joel Embiid is a huge part of what they're going to do. And basically, that whole offense is to be structured around the MVP, and it should be. Oh, well, we're going to see. Um, that goes back to running the offense around Joel Embiid, which is, you know, what Ramona Shelbourne was kind of saying in, hey, that Harden style of play doesn't allow Embiid to do his thing, which is funny because when they traded for him, you remember there was somebody on this panel, me, who didn't think that Harden um, – well, I at the time said I didn't think the Sixers clearly won the trade. I thought the the Nets were going to win the deal because not only did they get Ben Simmons, who, of course, I was higher on than everybody else. Now, Ben has completely crashed and burned, so we don't need to revisit that. But what we can revisit was it wasn't just Ben in the deal. It was Curry and it was Drummond at the time, if you remember. Yes. They got a shooter. They got the backup center, which the Sixers had really hurt uh, at that position. Uh, ben has completely been a non-factor I didn't think that James Harden was now I did think that the Sixers got more than most people thought they were going to get in getting James Harden Mm -hmm. but I didn't think it was a slam dunk that the Sixers won the deal right and I think you're seeing why James Harden is not you know the pick and roll is great but that's only one part of the offense they don't have a lot of, you know, peeling of the onions in that offense because Harden is such a one-dimensional ISO type of player. He's not a catch-and-shoot guy. He's not a great three-point shooter. He doesn't finish around the rim nearly as well as he used to. And if those things become a problem, they work in the regular season picking and rolling all night long. But when you play the same team seven nights in the playoffs, that begins to, you know, that's where teams start to Watch the tape. See what you're doing. This is where the coaching on the off days comes into play. What are they doing? They're picking and roll. How do we defend that? We're going to do this. We're going to change up our looks. We're going to put different guys in the lineups. What did uh, Boston do? They went with two bigs, Horford and Williams. That changed the dynamic of that pick and roll. Didn't work as well. So, yes, um, 
I'm interested to see what how Nick Nurse tweaks and or changes Joel Embiid's usage and role in the Sixers offense. Something else Windhorst said on NBA Today on ESPN TV I thought was interesting because he decided to frame the Sixers offseason in a certain way. Take a listen. The Sixers are not desperate. While they absolutely want James Harden back, and I think there is a way that they can play together and still be highly successful, the Sixers have other moves they can make. If Harden walks, they have cap space. They have tradable contracts. They have things that they can do. So let's – Harden is important, but he is not the be-all and end-all for the 76ers. Yeah, I mean, he's not the be-all end-all, I think, for the fans. But the question is, is it for the organization? Do the organization look at themselves as kind of in the corner here? I thought that was interesting, though, because – Windhorst is kind of known for saying things and people realizing later that he was actually telling you something. The maestro. He's kind of, you know, he's famous for the meme where he puts the two fingers up. You know, he has a long history now of being the guy who says things before it comes reality. Is it possible that Daryl Morey's got some sort of game plan up his sleeve? What, for getting rid of or keeping Harden? For all scenarios. Well, obviously, yes. I think that is why Morty is what he is in terms of he's he's viewed the way he is around the league. Uh, he hasn't won a championship. Some people think he's overrated, but he is creative. He is an outside-the-box stinker, and he has been able to already show that I can make moves on a roster where some people don't think there's moves to be made. The question is, <laughs> who are those moves on this roster? Before it was, well, there's no way you're trading Al Horford because nobody wants Al Horford. He found a way to trade Al Horford. Who's the guy on this team? Because you can't say that about Tobias Harris because he has a contract that is desirable because of the fact that it's on the, an expiring deal. That's different right. from Horford. Very different. So I guess the question on this team is, who's the contract that nobody wants? It's not hard. He doesn't have a contract. So, that you know... You'd have to find a sign and trade and make that happen. So is he talking to teams around the league? Does James Harden want to go to some of these teams? I don't know. There's This is a lot more complicated situation for Maury than the last time. And that was a complicated situation that nobody thought he could figure out a way to do something with. That's the biggest hurdle for me is that he has less to work with this time than he did the first time he was here. He does, but I still think the comment not desperate is interesting because it, it kind of gives you an idea that maybe the Sixers don't look at this offseason as the end-all, be-all. Which I find to be a little odd because of where Joel Embiid is in his right. timeline. He's going to be 30 years old, and you're telling me that this is an important offseason. Everyone that you have Joel Embiid on your team that doesn't have a championship previous is an important one. And you can't waste it. Ramona Shelburne breaks down the James Harden decision and the situation that goes along with it. With James Harden, I I think he's genuinely torn about coming back to Philadelphia or going to Houston. I've, I've heard Phoenix's name out there. That would be harder to get done. But James is going to have some options in free agency, but he can make the most money with the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. And it really is just a matter of how much do the Sixers want to pay him and for how long. Because now you're locking yourself into this partnership, which you can look at the analytics. And you can look at the two-man game between Embiid and Harden, but it is not a natural fit for both of their, their playing styles. Mm-hmm. And so unless... 
one or both of them are willing to change fundamentally and play a different way, that's going to be a tough fit, especially going forward. Well, I think um, hmm. she mentioned uh, Phoenix, right? And that's something she mentioned. We played that audio last week. Right. That she was on a radio show and she mentioned Phoenix. Right. The idea that the Phoenix, they're not moving on from Chris Paul if they don't have a plan in place to replace him. Right. Um, would James Harden, Devin Booker, how would that work? I'm trying to view that. Well, Ramona Shelburne, part of what she said in that audio was that that um, players want to play with Devin Booker. And that Kevin Durant and James Harden are still very good friends. So, you know, maybe there's something there to that. But, th- again... Yeah, but shouldn't Booker be a high priority for them to see if him and Harden would play well together? And I don't know that that pairing's great. I don't know either. I don't even know if that makes sense for Frank Vogel and James Harden. I mean, Vogel's a big defensive guy, right? You know, when he was with the Lakers and when he was with the Pacers, he coached star players to play great defense. Is James Harden at 35 years old going to go out and give you the best defensive season of his life? Yeah. Well, no, that's not happening. (laughs) That's not happening. But can Kevin Durant throw his weight around out there and get into the owner's ear? And that's the other question with Ishbia. I'm sort of looking at Ishbia like, is he the new George Steinbrenner? Is he the new owner who throws his weight around and says, I want stars. I want to go big. Yeah, is he the guy, you know, that just wants to hang out with the cool kids? And then the cool kids tell him, hey, let's go get this guy. That'll make right. you cooler. Yeah, Dr. Jerry Buss hanging out with Magic Johnson at the Forum Club, right? Yeah, that kind of stuff where he just basically is highly influenced by his star players. That's it seems possible. like a recipe for disaster. But again, it gets back to what is someone willing to pay Harden? And this is the question that every insider keeps asking. You know, are these teams willing to give James Harden the max dollar? Doesn't seem like a lot of people are willing to give him the max dollar. So then what does James Harden do? Is there a number that he says, I'm not going any lower than this? Well, we talked about this yesterday uh, on the Hoops Hype podcast that there's been rumbling that Houston does not want to give James Harden a max contract. And what does that do to Harden's decision to go to Houston? Does that cut them out? Because as Kelly Eco said in the podcast from The Athletic, uh, he basically said that he was hearing rumblings that in order to advance the rebuild, that the Rockets would not want to give him the max because they want to bring in multiple veterans, three or four, and that you can't do that if you're giving Harden this contract. So does that kind of push Houston out of the race? Right, and that's the that's the bigger issue. You know, they talked about this on a couple different podcasts, about the idea that Houston has a lot of money to work with in free agency. Why would they commit all that money to just one guy when they could potentially get three guys? And then where does that leave Harden? If the Sixers aren't willing to give him the max and the Rockets are willing to give him the max, then Harden is basically sitting there having to make a decision about something that maybe he doesn't make a decision about. Maybe he doesn't want to make the decision about the what if I'm not getting the money. Now, he might be forced into it. Uh, Mike, here's an outside-the-box move. Do they have enough money for Kyrie? I was always anti-Irving because he's whacked, but I know if the Sixers had Kyrie in Game 6 against Boston, I believe the Sixers win that game. The only way that works is a sign-in trade. Right. No, the, they don't have enough money to sign Kyrie. They would have to go outside the box. Just like you said, outside the box move. And I agree with you. 
as much as I'm not a Kyrie a believer in his dependability of the options I have in front of me, Harden, possibly Bradley Beal, a gap year. I think I'd probably take my shot with Kyrie. If he plays 40 games, oh well, can you play 16? Kyrie is a 16-game guy, not an 82-game guy. And guess what? At this point, I've seen enough fun in the 82. I want more fun in the 16. The Sixers have been a fun 82. They've given us fun years. They've given us number one seeds, and they've given us 50-plus win teams. Great. But I'm ready to see somebody finish in the bigger games. And they don't have that guy right now. Kyrie would be that guy. A Kyrie Embiid duo? Yeah, that moves my needle. I'll remind folks of this a couple of years ago. When the Nets were banged up. Harden was hurt. Kyrie was hurt. Harden played injured, played horribly. Kyrie played injured. He played better. Something to think about. Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN, the 97.3 ESPN free mobile app. Hey, the Phillies brought something back from their World Series run. Tell you why coming up on the Sports Bash Live 97.3 ESPN. Now, Bash on 97.3 ESPN. So the Phillies beat the Nationals back on Saturday, June the 3rd. It was a 4-2 win. Over at phillies.com, Todd Zalecki writes the story that hitting coach Kevin Long came into the clubhouse with a request, quote, play the bleeping song. The team's DJ is catcher Garrett Stubbs, and he basically blasted dancing on my own, and the Phillies have started with a six-game win streak after that and have continued to play well with a 15-3 win over the Diamondbacks last night. Since they played the flipping song, Phillies are eight and two. Garrett Stubbs says, quote, when the vibes are high, good things happen. So they were asked, so what happened? Why'd you play the song? He said, because we were sucking. (laughs) They started by saying it was a second place song, but then when they started to not play well, they were like, second place is a whole lot better than what we've been doing. So we might as well bring it back. So dancing on my own is back. So is dancing on my own cool again? As long as they keep winning, who cares? He said, quote, the vibes are high. Bring back some fun. That's what Kyle Schwarber said. He says it's back. It's got a lot of wins in it. Hey, look, it was a fun song. It was a fun time. It brought up a lot of fun memories of Look, the Phillies had a nice run, 07, 8, 9, 10, 11. I don't know that any of those runs were more fun other than the World Series in 08 than last year. Look, if you were to rank them, you would say 08. You could make a case that last year's run to the World Series was more fun than the 09 run to the World Series. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You tell me. But dancing on my own is back. You thought it was going to be Reese Hoskins, didn't you? No, he's not back. Nah, he's not back. But you know what? I say whatever helps you win, do it. Andrew Painter, though, he could be back. Got some news on him coming up a little bit later on in the show as well. But coming up next, 
5.30 tonight, Keith Smith going to talk a little NBA. Uh, Off-season, Bradley Beal. How does he think a deal with Beal looks like? But when we come back, who's under the most pressure to win an NBA title now that the two-time MVP, Nikola Jokic, has his? I'll give you my top five list of who's under the most pressure to win an NBA title. And there's a huge surprise on that list. Stick around for it. Coming up next. Josh, you'll be surprised. I know that. More Sports Bash coming up. This is the Sports Bash with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN. Now, live inside the Matt Black Kia Studios, here's Mike Gill. All right, just after five of the Sports Bash Live, last hour for me, but we'll do it together, hanging out on Mike Gill, at Mike Gill Show. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, David said, I moved back to South Jersey last summer between the Phils and the Birds. Had an absolute time of my life. Hey, welcome back, David. Thanks for tuning in. Yes, Phils gave us a run. Eagles gave us a run. Jeff in Ocean City says, 93 was the most amazing, fun, non-title run. I will agree in... Uh, okay, I'll address that real fast. 93 was the most improbable because that team stunk in 92. They weren't good in 91, 90. There was no building. It wasn't like this team was building towards something. They came out of nowhere. Here's the difference. And I don't like the extra playoff rounds, but the nature of having more playoffs gave you more fun because you had more games. So the Phillies gave us a lot more fun because they beat the Cardinals, then they beat the Braves, then they beat the Padres, and, of course, they lost to the Astros. Uh, the Phillies in 92, you know, you go back to that run, it's different because back then you didn't have the same um, journey to go on. And, look, I like I, I like less playoff teams. I think it's cheapened the sport. I think it's cheapened the playoffs. But um, when their playoffs were not nearly as fruitful as or fun, I should say, you only had to beat um, Atlanta back then. There was only the National League Championship Series, and then you went to the World Series. So the Phillies made the playoffs that year, but only played Atlanta. And while it's great, you're playing Atlanta. And by the way, if you remember back then, Atlanta in 1993 was playing in the National League West. And you only had a West and an East. You had the Phillies in the East and you had the Atlanta Braves representing the West. Now, back then, Atlanta was this team, you know, for those of you who don't remember, they had Maddox and Glavitt and Steve Avery and um, John Smoltz. They had this unbelievable pitching staff. Phillies win the first game 4-3. Second game, Atlanta 14-3. Philadelphia loses. They're down two games to one in the series. And then they win 2-1. to one. That was the Danny Jackson game. He beat John Smoltz. Then they win the game 4-3, uh, where they won that game uh, in extra innings. And then they won game six. They won three straight games. Tommy Green closed out game six. He won game six uh, for the Phillies to go to the World Series. So it was an improbable run, but it was shorter. I think that's the difference. That's the difference for me with last year's team is that the 2022 Phillies, while, you know, you 
I wouldn't say you you know it was a bright of passage they were going to make the playoffs. You were hoping they had been building towards being a playoff team for the last couple of years, or maybe like six years, and they've been close, they've been close, they've been close, and then they finally got there. And then when they finally got there, they gave us a memory that you know went on for. My gosh, it seems like every single night you were getting something from the team. But they played in the wild card against the Cardinals. And then they played in the division series against the Braves. And then they went on to the National League Championship against the Padres. So you got three very um, different types of series, by the way. You know, that uh, Phillies wild card run... Um, they beat the Cardinals in the, t- the two games, but remember they're down. They have to score all those runs in the ninth inning against the Cardinals and come back. So Jeff at Ocean City, while the 93 team was more improbable, still fun. I think that the run last year was more entertaining. Is that fair to say, I guess? I'm 93 maybe because it was the first time. I don't know how old you are, Jeff, but me being 46 – I don't really remember the 83 Phillies all that much. I vaguely, I was like five years old. So I vaguely remember the night, the 83 Phillies. They, they got beat by the, uh, Orioles in the World Series. I vaguely remember that. I don't remember 80 at all. I was three. So I don't remember anything. So my, the first taste of the Phillies being in the playoffs is that 93 team. So it will always kind of have that first special feel. But I think this one was more fun last year. You know, that that Segura hit, the go-ahead two-run RBI single in the top of the ninth, that's like one of the – remember, we, we did a whole show one day on all the memories and the moments that this run gave you. I mean, the, the Segura hit um, and then playing in the National League Division Series, all the moments in that with uh, Reese Hoskins, the home run. The inside the park home run. It seemed like every night they were giving you something a little different. Yeah, to me, I, I think it just depends on how how you rode the wave. I think that for people in '93, it was it was more of almost a full season ride, whereas last year it was more of a. June, July onward ride. Because there were a lot of people, Mike, you remember, we talked about it daily last year. People didn't believe in the team last year in June and July. Yeah, a lot of it was because of past disappointments. Right, whereas in 93, there were a lot of moments that happened a little earlier in the year that got people well, on Well, I mean, 93, the difference was they got off to a rocket-launching start, similar to what the Sixers did in 2001. Right. The Sixers that year opened up, I think, like 10-0, and 0, and then they just never looked back. So I think for a lot of people, maybe they felt like, hey, the party started in April and May, whereas last year the party started in, like, August and September for them. Well, I mean, again, it was different. The 93 Phillies, nobody thought that that team going into the season was really a playoff team. You didn't go to spring training like, oh, this is the year. This team is going to make the playoff. This is finally going to be the one. And when they got off to the start that they did, I don't quite remember what the start they got off to was. I can probably look it up here. But they got off to a start that you were like, holy mackerel, the baseball team in this. Because in 92, 
they were not a good baseball team. So it wasn't like you had the hopes and expectations that this team was going to give you something. The year before, they were 70 and 92. So you go from 70 and 92 and you open up the season and all of a sudden you're in first place and you're thinking, holy mackerel, this team might be pretty darn good. Yeah, they started the year 17 and 5. There you so, go. So, you know, you were sitting there like, wow, this is cool. And by the way, they had at least 17 wins in three of the first four months of the season, according to baseball reference. So, I mean, you could argue that, you know, they were just, they captivated the city from basically the first month on, whereas last year's team was more of a, you know, down the stretch they come. It was not down the stretch. It was literally, I don't think people really connected with this team until the Segura hit. You really think it was that long for people? Yeah. I think they're a lot. They didn't get into the playoffs till like the last day of the season. I mean, it took the Brewers to lose for them to backwards in. So there was no chance for you to really give this team a hug and say, good job. You only could wait until the Brewers lost for you to get in. And then you're down in the ninth inning of the first game of the series. Then Segura gets that base hit. And that's when it was kind of like, wow. They just won this game. They're back. I'm on. I want to be a part of this. And then they won again. Uh, Nola pitched great in that game that night, by the way, against the Cardinals. And then they go into the Braves series. Of course, they're an underdog in that. And look, like Reese Hoskins, he's not the most popular guy. I mean, his defense, he strikes out a lot. He goes and hits the home run, slams his – I mean, those kind of things just – so, yeah, I don't think people – really got on board until they won that game. I think maybe that's why some people feel differently about it. I, I would assume, you know, because it was so late in the season. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I mean, if you had to ask me what my personal was, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the 2009 season personally because of all of the crazy things that happened that year. But, hey, you know, I understand if somebody loved last year or loved 93 because both of those were so memorable and unforgettable. Yeah, well, listen, I I talked before. The 08 one is number one, obviously. They won the World Series. And you had memories and moments in that one. You had Mm -hmm. the bat against CC Sabathia. You had the Matt Stairs home run into the night. I mean, you had things, and it ended with a World Series. I mean, you had the split game, uh, the rain day against the the two rain days against the, the Rays. You had moments, and you won the World Series. Right. The 9-1, the I don't remember it being as memorable, and then you lose to the Yankees in kind of disappointing fashion. I mean, for me, it was memorable because you know you went into that season, and they, they started out very slow that year, by the way. 2008, 2009, they didn't start those seasons very well. And there was like, okay, we got a hangover. And then they then there was that hitting streak that they had where it felt like, you know, Utley and Rollins taking turns having hitting streaks. And then you go out and get Cliff Lee, and you're like, all right, here we go. You know, and then they brought in Pedro Martinez. You're like, oh, okay. And, and that run to the World Series, it, it started like this building of momentum. And then I remember going out and watching those games. And it was like, you know, everywhere you went, it was, you know, Phillies fans versus Yankee fans and them arguing with each other at bars and the the intensity of those Well, the fact games. that they played the Yankees added to it. So for me, there were a lot of things that went for 2009, at least for me. Yeah, I, I, the, the 09 one I would probably still rank, for me, behind 
the one last year. Because last year was so you, – in 09, you, they won the World Series. You anticipated that they were going to be a playoff team again the next year. They, right. they had started to say – you got to the point with the Phillies where you were starting to look at them and say, this is – you know, I used to say back then, I remember, you know, uh, towards the end, like 11, you would say, look, it's not a rite of passage that the Phillies are going to make the World Series every single year. Um because they made it in 07, 8, 9, 10, 11. We're like, at some point, it's going to be over for them. And if you remember, uh, they played the Rockies in 09. They played the Rockies in the division series, kind of a nondescript series. They, they beat them pretty handily. Then they beat the Dodgers. They beat those the Dodgers four games to one. So it wasn't like... You know, you were tested or you were pushed or like you, you, they, they were dominant to get there. That was the year they had Cliff Lee. Uh, and then people thought Cliff that was deadline. the best team, the better team than the right. one that won the year before. And then they, they were up on the Yankees and then they went to kind of went out with a whimper. So it just feels like the playoff run wasn't as maybe exciting or whatever. I mean, look, to me, 08 would be the run. And then last year's run. Probably 93, and then 09, and the other ones are all disappointing. I mean, they lost um, to the Cardinals. They lost to the Giants. I mean, those were absolutely disappointing finishes. Yeah. I, I just think that, you know, I don't think you can go wrong with any of the three, whether it's 93, 09, or last year of – it's just they were different styles of excitement and rides. You know, it was like you, know, you go to an amusement park, and every amusement park has a roller coaster. But not every roller coaster is the same. No. Um, and look, when you're in the playoffs, it's always fun, uh, especially when you make a deep run. Those teams were the most recent Phillies teams to make it to the World Series three times. Uh, the 08 team, the 09 team, last year's team, and 93, uh, however you want to stack those up. But uh, the NBA just had their run to the finals. So who is under the most pressure to win the next NBA title? Well, uh, they debated this on PTI with Tony Kornheiser and uh, Michael Wilbon. And here's what Wilbon, here's the guys he listed as the players who have the most pressure to win the title next. Players who are entering their primes, maybe not there yet, not really there, but great players like Luka Doncic, okay, who's been on the short list for MVP. We don't know what's going to happen with John Moran's career, but a great player. Devin Booker, great player, been to the finals, hasn't won. And then there are older guys who have been close, conference finals or finals twice, Jimmy Butler, Dame Lillard, conference finals once. There's guys, Tony, for whom the train seems to have left the station, although they're going to the Hall of Fame on the first battle. Harden, Westbrook, Chris Paul, Hall of Fame, no argument. And then there's Joel Embiid, who's got an MVP now and hadn't been to the conference finals. And to me, the number one guy on this list, the number one guy is Jason Tatum. Been to the finals. You know, Jimmy Butler's been twice as many times, but Jason Tatum is the number one guy on the clock to me. Okay. Now, I specifically sent that bite to Josh to play for me, and I did not listen to it before the show because I didn't want to hear his answers. So those were his. I've got my five, and I will say three of my five are on his list. Some of them I don't agree with. I'll go with the ones I don't agree with. Harden, Westbrook, Chris Paul. I don't look at the pressure being on to win the title because at this point of their careers, they're not the main guys on their team. Okay. Right? 
I can't say they're expected to win the title because they're no longer at the level. It would be nice for them to get one, I guess. Same with Jimmy Butler. Same with Dame Lillard. Those guys, John Morant. Those guys aren't on teams. Luka Doncic, even to me, they're not a team that people say right now anyway. Oh, the Dow- they didn't even make the playoffs last year. Oh, the Dallas Mavericks. How can you say Luka Doncic, the, the pressure's on him to win an NBA title? He's so young in his career. Now, I know I'm going to mention a couple guys on this list that you might say, well, you gave Luka a pass, but not these guys. Number five, who's under the most pressure to win an NBA title? Victor Wambayana. Oh, come on. You can't, you can't say there's no pressure on Luka, but they say there's pressure on Victor. This guy is on the hype machine on the same level as LeBron and Zion, and that's why Zion's number four on my list. I can accept that. Victor Wambayana is now, this guy is LeBron, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. I mean, you can't come up with a person who thinks this guy's going to fail. I'm not going to put him on a list until he actually plays. Listen, I'm not suggesting that it's fair, but when you're the number one pick by waves, not miles, I went to uh, Wikipedia the other day. He's already listed as the number one pick. There's not even anybody in the conversation. This guy, seven foot five, transformational player. He's going to change the game, not to mention where he's going to play. If he was going to Memphis or he was going to Detroit or he was going to Charlotte, those are losing franchises. Mm-hmm. He's going to a place that the expectation is you're the next guy. We had Robinson and he won. We had Duncan and he won. Now we got Victor Wambayana. Time for you to win. I'm not saying in year one. I'm just saying the night his name is picked, the sand begins to go through the hourglass on when he's going to get the Spurs back. They were a model franchise. You can make an argument. They were the New England Patriots of the NBA. Sure. And for the last five years, uh, they're not the New England Patriots. They are the San Antonio Spurs. They are an irrelevant franchise. This guy brings them back to relevancy. Because of the franchise that's taking him, the pressure is now on. I say if you have Wembayana on the list, you have to have Luke on the list. That's my position. I don't think Dallas is in a position to win a championship. It doesn't matter if Dallas right is in a position. Luke is supposed to be one of the best players in the league, right? If he's one of the best players in the league, then you would say they should be a favorite to win a championship, and they're not. But that's not because of but is that because of him or because of the team. The team's just not good enough, so that's why I can't put the pressure on him to win an NBA title if the team's not good enough. I acknowledge the team's not good enough, so I can't make an outlandish comment that you have to win an NBA championship knowing that your team's not good enough. Well, then probably a lot of guys should be on the list because their teams aren't good enough. Well, and that's why the guys on my list make sense. Victor Wambayana makes sense. Why? Because of the organizations he's going to, the pressure's going to be on him to be what Duncan was, to be what Robinson was. Now you have Popovich, you're the number one pick. And not only are you the number one pick, you are the number one pick by mountains. There is not even anyone in the conversation. And it's not only because you're so much better than that guy, you are supposed to be so much better than everybody. Seven foot five, but you're not a stiff. Seven foot five, you're a guard. Seven foot five, you can shoot the three. Seven foot five, he can run the offense. I mean, we could be looking at a combination of name a player and mix them all into the mixing bowl. That's what's on this guy's plate as he enters this league. 
I would put more pressure on Popovich to not mess this up than put on Victor. Well, he's the player, so he's the player under the pressure right, right now. Zion's number four because he had the the hype that Victor Wambayana has right now. He had it five years ago, right. and he's not come close to it. But he's done diddly squat. He's on a team that can win. Yes, I think that team, if he's healthy and is playing and he wants to play, now I've always said I don't think Zion could be the best player on the team that wins a championship. But he's got help on that team. Does he want to play? Does he care? Does he love it? Seems he loves a couple other things going on in his life, a little more than basketball. Yeah. Chicka-chicka-bow-wow. So Zion's number four on my list as the hype he has is starting to wear off a little bit. Number three, Devin Booker. I love Booker. Love his game. But now you got Kevin Durant. You get Kevin Durant out there, eh, the pressure starts to go on you as you go from Booker Young guy, like him a lot, great player, everybody wants to play with him. You know, Booker's starting to get to the point where, you know, we talk about he's still a young player, but that's because so many of these guys have been in the leagues at such a young age. Booker was drafted in 2015. Guys from that draft, you're starting to talk about, all right, you just had Jokic win one. Yep. So now guys from this draft, which was not a great draft, by the way, Carl Towns, D'Angelo Russell, uh, Porzingis, Devin Booker, are you going to be the first guy from that draft class to finally get one? And I think we're at the point where that draft class doesn't really have a superstar. He is a superstar, but he's not that next-level superstar until he wins a title. And that's why when they got Durant, the pressure goes to Booker of, are you finally going to be Finish, kind of finish his matriculation from star to superstar. That's my favorite name on your list so far. Okay. Number two, Joel Embiid. I mean. Obvious. It's obvious, right? It's got to be Embiid. Process, yada, yada. Sixers, got to get it done. And if you don't get it done, I mean, you're always going to be kind of the guy that was the face of this thing and you didn't get it done. Yeah, you turn into Charles Barkley and Dominique Wilkins and all those guys. Yes, exactly. Great player who couldn't get it done. Um. And number one, it's kind of a – I have the Tatum and Brown duo. Okay. So you can put Tatum on there if you want. To me, it's Tatum and Brown because as long as they're together, they've got to win a championship. Yeah. It's always been Tatum and Brown, even though Tatum is the guy. It's always been Tatum and Brown. Yeah, they, they are synonymous at this point. So who was under the most pressure to win an NBA title? It's, of course, Boston because everybody thinks Boston's the best team every year. Oh, Boston's the best. They have the best coach. they got the best players. They've won skedaddle. So the pressure's on them. How many shots are they going to get together? And I don't know. I think are they taking steps backwards? Are they taking steps forwards? We shall see. So that's my list. How many people agree? Victor Wambayama, number five. Zion, number four. Booker, number three. Embiid, number two. Tatum and Brown duo, number one. That's who's under the most pressure to win an NBA title. 609-403-0973, plus uh, the beginning of the conversation. What was the most fun Phillies run? We got into that based on the fact that they brought back Dancing on My Own. Uh, Mike, I'm 62. I have to toss in the 80 team also. I, I say that's up to you guys. I wasn't old enough to remember the 80 team. I was only three. Uh, Mike, 2010 was more fun than 09, in my opinion. That pitching was terrific, plus the two no-nos by Doc. 
Yeah, but they didn't get to the World Series that year. Yeah, the prerequisite was kind of like, hey, what team got to the World Series? It's up to him. If he had more fun with 10, that's fine. But I had more fun with the teams that made it to the World Series. Hey, when we come back, the NBA season is in the book, but the silly season is already here. Does it make sense to trade for Bradley Beal in that contract? We ask Keith Smith coming up next from SpotTrack.com right here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. ESPN. 5.30 on the nose on a Wednesday night. Sports Bash Live. The NBA season has closed. Sad day. I know Keith Smith always hates when the NBA season comes to a close. But the silly season is here. And I like the NBA because they get right into the draft. We have like the draft. And on draft day, things, crazy things can happen. Then summer league. And next thing you know. Free agency is here, and it starts pretty quickly, the offseason. You don't get to enjoy that championship very long for the Denver Nuggets now, do you, Keith? What's going on, buddy? Hey, yeah, no, you're right. The NBA is the only league where it's like have the finals, have a parade, draft the next day, free agency a week after that, and then play summer league, and then we all go home for two months. Yeah. And, it, you know, everybody else is, you know, we spread this thing out a little bit, but they, they, they get it going, but they figured out how to turn this into really about a, you know, 10-month-a-year league. It's really only that uh, second half of July through the middle of September, and then camps open, and we're right back to it. And this year, we've got the World Cup in August, so I mean, everything's going to keep going for quite a bit here. Yeah, and there's so many cool storylines because Denver wins the championship. And so many times, Keith, when a team wins a title, you start to look at that team and what they did. Uh, Our team's going to try to emulate, if there is something they can emulate, about what Denver did. You know, I think the um, when I look at the Denver Nuggets, you look at a team that preached patience. I mean, this is a team, Michael Malone, you and I talk about the way fans look at coaches. He didn't make the playoffs for three straight years. How many teams would have given up on their coach after not making the playoffs for three years in a row? They stuck with the core. They got Jokic and then Murray. Uh, and those guys, look, people forget Jokic and Murray, they didn't make the playoffs. Jokic for three straight years. Murray the first two. They had some failures, but they finally won. So will patience become in vogue in the NBA? I'd love to say yes, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think it's just one of those things where I think that might be some of the stuff you hear, right? That might be some of the things people preach this year of, you know, oh, well, you know, you got to be patient because of like, what happened with the Nuggets. And that'll be the talking point, you know, when we're in October and November and the team's going through like a three-game losing streak and they're right around 500. It'll be, hey, just be patient. Look at the Nuggets. But in reality, you know, everybody's going to be like, all right, yeah, that's fun, but let's win games. But to your point on them, you know, I look back and I had a laugh with somebody. There was a legitimate discussion. It was probably now, I think, five, six years ago of, should we keep Nikola Jokic or Yusuf Nurkic? Right. That was a real discussion the Nuggets were having of 
They're both too good for one to be the backup. So we got to decide on one. And thankfully, they made the right choice and, and kept uh, Nikola Jokic because who knows what would have become, you know, had they, they done it the other way around. But yeah, I mean, now that's just sometimes what it is. But yeah, you know, slow, steady building of the roster, adding Aaron Gordon and adding Contavious Caldwell Pope, adding Bruce Brown, you know, we're, you know, filling holes uh, throughout. And, you know, and a big part of it too was they were a team in the middle of the draft who said, you know what? It's time we should take the gamble here in the you know, late lottery on Michael Porter Jr. and hope it all works out. Boy, did it work out well. Yeah, uh, I loved Porter Jr. that year. I was hoping the Sixers would have snagged him in that particular draft when, of course, he was on the board. He kept falling down there. Uh, so their role players are top level. I mean, you got Aaron Gordon, the fourth pick of the draft. You got Michael Porter Jr., who some thought could have been the first pick of the draft, and they are your role players. This is why Denver uh, has finally got that championship. So kudos to them. When you look at teams around the league looking at the Heat, do they look at them as an aberration? I mean, they've been in the finals multiple times, but this was a 44-38 and 38 team. We know they had some injuries. They shot the lights out here. So do teams around the league want to emulate what they've done? Yeah, it's funny. You know, there's some people who say that there's a fear of, you know, are the Heat and the, even the Lakers making it to the conference finals? Is there a belief of, man, the regular season really doesn't matter, just – just get yourself into into the tournament and you're good. And I think, you know, what what gets missed there is the Heat were three minutes away in the second play-in game from being eliminated entirely. You know, if if the Bulls had closed a little bit better, we wouldn't have had this whole Miami conversation. And now emulating the Heat, yeah, it sounds good, but the reality is Miami is the best development team that there is in the entire NBA. They use their G League program better than anybody else has figured it out. Guys like Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson. You know, over the years, they send these guys down, they pick them out, they get them down in the G League, they work them through there, then they bring them in, start giving them minutes with the NBA team, and the next thing you know, these guys are moving on. Even Caleb Martin started with Miami on a two-way contract. So, you know, they they do a great job, and that's all easier said than done. Now, I do think you're going to see more teams put more emphasis into that with the new CBA coming in, the restrictions around being really expensive. But there's also a reality of they've drafted quite well. Also, you know, Bam Adebayo, Tyler Hero. They've made a couple smart trades for Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry. So they're not, you know, fully, completely, you know, just, you know, homegrown, you know, pick out these diamonds in the rough. But, you know, it, it, it's a lot harder, you know, said than done. But both of these teams, I think, are a good sign of it takes a little bit of all of it, right? It's, you got to be good at the draft. You got to develop guys. You got to make smart trades. And when you make your free agent signings, they got to be good ones. And that's what both of these teams did. Yeah. Um, you mentioned development. You know, the Sixers today, uh, they hired Rico Hines. He's joining Nick Nurse's staff about development. And I was going to follow up with, you know, how big player development is going to start to become. If you're, if that's the one thing you took from the Heat is how much more will I need to invest in development of players? Yeah, huge. I mean, everybody's going to have to a little bit, especially if you've got those uh, two or three expensive top-end guys, which, like, we keep it with the Sixers. You've got Joel Embiid already there. We'll see what happens with James Harden, but Tyrese Maxey probably going to be, if not a max guy, really, really close uh, to a max contract on on his his extension that he's eligible to sign this summer. So, so you're going to be in that spot where you're you're going to be pretty top heavy, and then you are going to need a few of those guys to really pop. Whether those are your own draft picks or just guys you find on the undrafted market, either way. But you know the G League teams are going to become really really important. I think. The smart franchises that kind of saw this coming and have invested money and time into the G League, 
they're going to have a little bit of a step up ahead of the teams that are just, ah, it's just an extra thing and we could throw a guy down there, you know, for a week and see what it looks like. But the teams that really stay connected, send guys down with the development plan and those things, that's going to be really, really important moving forward. Keith Smith, SpotTrack.com covers the NBA. The offseason is underway. And obviously, right now, today, the big story already seems to be this offseason and Bradley Beal. Uh, that contract is eye-opening. Uh, <laughs> man. So how do you think this is all going to be for Beal? Is it a lot of smoke or will they be fired? Do you think this is one of these names? We've heard about Lillard's name for years. He's still in Portland. Uh, but has Washington finally looked at themselves in the mirror and say, we made a mistake, let's move on? If I told you you could get a guy who's 29 years old and make, you know, last year made over 50% of his shots from the floor, made over 36% from three, is generally a guy who's in the high 30s, low 40s from three, pretty good shooter, better than average playmaker for somebody who's not a primary all-ball, on-ball point guard. And, yeah, he's got some games missed issues, but, you know, that's something that, that seems to like it comes and goes a little bit with that. I think everybody would say, yeah, I'm all in. You know, sign me up. I'll trade for that guy. But then I got to add in, oh, yeah, by the way, the next four years, he's owed almost $208 million on his contract. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, wait a second. That's the problem with Bradley Beal is everybody, it all sounds good until you get to the contract number. Then it's like, whoa, that's like, the, you know, one of the single biggest contracts in the league right now. You know, where are we going? Add to it, he has the only negotiated no-trade clause in the NBA. So he can block a trade to any team. He can say, nope, don't want to go there. Nope, don't want to go there. No, I don't like what's coming back because it doesn't leave us with enough left. So I'm going to block the trade, you know, redo it, figure out another way. And that's a huge problem, too. So that's something that's really, really tough for, you know, putting together a package because now you got to you got to meet the value of the player, which is more neutral because of the contract. But you got to be able to match salary, and you got to make it so that he feels good enough about coming to you. That's going to make coming together with a trade. That said, I do think Washington's going to try really, really hard because all signs are that the Wizards are going to lean heavy into a rebuild for the first time in what feels like about two decades. So if the Wizards do agree and decide they want a trade, obviously he has to agree to where he wants to go. Uh, there has been some murmurs that you might be surprised at how little Washington gets in return. So what kind of, you know, is it a player? Is it a pick? Or do you think they're just looking to dump salary at this point? I think ideally, right, they'd love to get, you know, hey, give us something that we can sell as, hey, there's here's somebody to get behind, you know, as we go forward. Somebody who's in there, you know, maybe early to mid-20s that, that we can say, hey, by the time we're ready to be good again, this guy will still be around. And, you know, that that's our new new Bradley Beal, if mm. you will. But outside of that, I think they'd be very content to just say, hey, you know what we did? We just cleared $208 million off our books. We're, we're now, you know, pretty well and clean moving forward here without any, you know, major contract. And we're going to start all over with a ton of cap space. I believe they have all but one of their own draft picks uh, coming up. I think they still owe a, a, a pretty heavily protected pick in a trade. So, so they're in a spot where, yeah, if that's direction they want to go, they can all of a sudden be in a really good place. Right. I mean, obviously the question here locally would be Tobias Harris. I mean, do the Wizards value Hey, we'll take Harris to get rid of his contract next season. And are the Sixers saying, we'll take that contract on to give Embiid a shot? I mean, does that type of deal uh, jive with you, or is that not getting it done if you're Washington? 
Yeah, I mean, that that could be, right? Because then your whole get there is, hey, we got one more year of Harris. They'd probably try to trade him in another deal and see if you could do something there. But, you know, we, we got one more year, and, and we get free and clear out of three years and, you know, uh, you know a, t- a ton of money, three years and like $150-plus million that were owed to him. So, so yeah, so we're, we're out of that. that. That that might be enough, you know. And it might be like, hey, give us Harris and, you know, throwing a couple of the kids at the Sixers are probably like, sure, you can have them too. And, you know, let's, let's keep this thing moving. Or may, maybe it's a, yeah, we'll toss in a protected pick down the line or something like that if they needed to juice that that up. But I think Harris alone might be enough. From the Philly side, though, you're going to be looking at and saying, you're only doing that if James Harden walks, right? Because you're, you, you, you're not going to be – you can't have Harden, Beal, Maxi and Embiid as kind of your primary guys. You'd just be way too small and not enough defense on that team. You, you, you'd you know, run Joel Embiid ragged. He'd never need to score an offense because he might as well just stay back and play defense the whole time to cover for all those guys. Yeah, uh, that would be an interesting look, obviously. I was going to ask you, now if Harden walked and you had Beal replacing him, would a Harden-Beal uh, duo be something of interest uh, if you're the Sixers? And Embiid, uh, Beal duo? Yeah, what did like, I say? Yeah, Harden-Beal, yeah, and Embiid-Beal. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think so. Because I think, you know, that, that's the tenets of a pretty good offense already, right? And, and I think, you know, Beal's different from Harden. I, I think he's a better uh, shooter than Harden is. I think in some ways he is a better pure scorer, meaning he doesn't get to the free throw line as much. And we're starting to see that wane with Harden. Harden's a much better playmaker, um, obviously, you know, than, than Beal is. But, you know, Harden's also a lot more durable than, than Beal is. I know he misses time occasionally, but he's generally a pretty good bet to play, you know, somewhere between 65, 75 games. And Beal is, you know, he had suffered through all these injuries early in his career. We're like, is this guy ever going to get healthy? Then he went through about four years where it was like, all right, this guy doesn't miss time anymore. And then over the last two years, he's played in 90 combined games. Now this past season, that's a little wonky because he might have been able to come back and play at the end of the year, but they were already out of it. They, they were prioritizing draft positions, so maybe they, they weren't you know, ready to rush him back on the floor. But, yeah, those are things you're going to have to figure out as well. Keith Smith, SpotTrack.com. Uh, all right, Zion, is that somebody you anticipate uh, that New Orleans has had enough with and that they, they would like to move? Oh, boy, that one is tough, Mike. I, I You know, it's so hard because on the one hand, you look at it and say, man, if we can just get this dude on the floor, he is an all NBA <laughs> level talent, right? He is so good. You know, it, it, it's not dissimilar to the conversations we had several years back about Joel Embiid, you know, where it's like when he plays, he's really, really good, but is he ever going to be on the floor? Yeah, that's your challenge. And I think that's where if you're New Orleans and you're saying, Hey, we can get to a point in the draft. We feel really good. All reports are it's Scoot Henderson is the guy they want to go get. If they are, that's our guy. Around the other guys we have, keep Brandon Ingram. We feel like that's our dude. We're going to build a winner that way. Then you might look at it and say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done betting on the if he gets healthy kind of stuff because it's never going to happen. And maybe that is how they feel and that they're ready to go in a different direction. But, boy, you better be right because the last thing you want to do is trade him. And even if Scoot Henderson ends up pretty good, chances of him being as good as a healthy Zion has been, that gets really, really rough. And every once in a while we see this. These guys get traded, and then all of a sudden they go somewhere else and it's like, 
dude, you missed four games a season. Like, what? What? Where was this? You know, the entire time you were with us. And if that happens, man, you're, you're probably losing that trade no matter what. All right. Uh, and then obviously uh, the days change and the hardened stuff seems to bounce back and forth like a <laughs> ping pong table. Houston, not Houston. They want him. They think he's coming back. Uh, some sides say, yeah, he's back. Other sides said, I'm not so sure. I mean, for Harden, I don't know. Houston always never made sense to me. Why would they give him a max deal with where they are? Uh, and they probably don't want to give him a max deal. But how, what is your early read on what Harden will do? Yeah, the interesting wrinkle that's starting to come in some of these reports is that Houston doesn't want to do a max deal with Harden. And that's where, to me, it all falls apart. Because at that point, I think he's like, nope. If it's a max deal, I think it really becomes a very real decision for him. Now, I'm with you. I still don't get it even with him on a max deal. Like, I, then what did, what, what did we do the last three years for? Like, like what, what was it for just to get him when he's older and not as good of a player? Like, like what, what was the point of all of this? Because they're probably going to then cash in a bunch of those kids they've drafted to put other players around Harden that are ready to win. and Because that roster is not a James Harden away, not this version of James Harden at least, away from being a contender. So so then you're kind of saying, all right, well, we went through the last few years and we're throwing it all, all away and we're going to basically start over with a much older version. Now, if I'm Harden, if they start saying, yeah, we don't really want to do the max because of X, Y, and Z concerns, then I'm saying, no, I don't want to go then. I have no interest to leave Philadelphia where even if they – you know, went at least under a little under the max. At least there, I'm on a contender, right? So that that I think becomes a big challenge. And I know there's been some other stuff of hey, don't count out Phoenix. I have no idea how in the world that would be a thing. You know, unless you know all of a sudden Chris Paul and other stuff was involved in trades, then, then maybe. But you know, for for now, I, I think it's you know, probably one of those things where if Houston comes with a full max, they're probably more in play. And if they don't, then Harden probably says, you know what, I'm content just to stay right here in Philadelphia. Yeah, that's uh, going to be one to keep an eye on. It's going to go back and forth, it seems like, until his decision can be made. Keith Smith, the offseason's here. SpotTrack.com for all your NBA offseason. Uh, check him out at Keith Smith NBA. And uh, when things happen here, of course, we'll be on it on the Sports Pass Live on 97.3 ESPN. All right, my brother. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Love talking Keith uh, NBA because uh, this offseason with the Beal, possibly Harden move, Lillard, we'll see for right on that. Zion, the draft next week. You can listen to the draft right here Thursday night on 97.3 ESPN. Next Thursday night, by the way, week from tomorrow, the NBA draft. The Sixers do not have a pick, but will they find a way to get back into the first round or the second round or do something? Maybe make a sign-and-trade deal on draft night. That's why you have to listen. I'm Mike Hill. This is the Sports Pass Live on 97.3 ESPN. No Phil's lineup today. They play tonight. Josh will get that tonight on game night. Listen around 6.30 or so. I'm Mike Hill. This is the Sports Pass. We'll wrap up the show. Do you remember next? Now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Bash.
with Mike Gill on 97.3 ESPN, South Jersey's sports leader. All right, Mike Gill with you, getting ready to wrap up a uh, Wednesday night show. Before we go, hey, do you remember on this day 36 years ago today, 36 years ago today, uh, Keith Hernandez spit on two Mets fans during a game against the Phillies. <laughs> June 14th. 1987, Mets, Phillies. You probably have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, I think I remember watching this in, like, the Mets 30 for 30. But no, like... no, 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 no. You didn't see it in the Mets 30 for 30. It was the Seinfeld did you watch episode. The Mets 30 for 30? I did. It was four parts. I saw it, and this was from Seinfeld when Kramer and Newman had the second spitter, and they made the story up where Keith Hernandez spit on, uh, it was Roger McDowell that so ended this up is, This is a fake, do you remember? 36 years ago today, Keith Hernandez spit on the two Mets fans, and Newman thought it was Roger McDowell. Move on, this is Seinfeld. I'm sure there's people in the audience right now that are cracking up laughing, remembering that moment. You said you saw it in the 30 for 30, for no, God's I sake. said I think it might have been in the 30 for 30. Keith Hernandez spitting on two Mets fans within the 30 for 30. There was a lot of stuff in that four-part 30 for 30. I saw the Mets 30 for 30 four-part series. And you would remember Keith Hernandez spitting on the Mets fans. Yes, it was a fictional moment. June 14th, 1987, Mets, Phillies. Newman's breaking it down as to why he doesn't like Keith Hernandez, who was dating Elaine in the episode. And it turns out it wasn't Keith Hernandez who spit on Kramer. It was Roger McDowell. There was a second spitter. That was the name of the episode, the second spitter. I didn't miss much of this. You go watch that. I bet you'll come in tomorrow laughing. Say, that was actually very funny. All right, that's what happened on this day 36 years ago. The second spitter happened on this day. All right, Sports Bash Live, 97.3 ESPN. Mike Gill closing you out. Tomorrow's show, uh, Phillies tonight, Ranger Suarez. I kind of like the Phillies tonight. I think they're going to win again tonight. I think the offense stays hot. Merrill Kelly, he's on my fantasy team, so he'll get lit up. He's pitched very well this year, actually. But I think Phil's hot offense continues. See what they do with the lineup tonight when they put that out around 6.30. Uh, tomorrow, we'll take a look at uh, a little bit more of the NBA offseason big storylines. You know, Bradley Beal, is there any other big names that could be on the move? The NBA draft is a week from tomorrow. That's it for me. Game night's next. This has been the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.